hi ho silver away and then then it cuts to it cuts to uh tonto who says don't ever do that again <laughs> which i thought was <laughs> that, great that was hysterical this is episode 51 of the movie bite podcast where we discuss praise lament or lampoon movies tv shows and more today is wednesday july 10th 2013 and i am your host tj here with me today, Chad has survived round one of the Movie Bite podcast on episode yeah. 50. Yeah. And uh, here we are recording episode 51. So, Chad, welcome back. Glad uh, to be back. I didn't get any memos from anybody in our audience or any emails saying to fire you, so we thought we would have you back. Oh, so, you, that's good. Uh, you, you can wipe the sweat off of your brow. <laughs> I, I, for one, am still missing Joe, but it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the fact that I've known Joe for a while and podcasted with him for a while. So joining us also today to talk about some cool stuff is uh, Mike Fissel of RealWorldTheology.com, the great empire of RealWorldTheology.com. <laughs> the, the great empire of six months of posts. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Mike. It's oh, great it's- to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, man. I, I'm also sad that Joe is no longer here, um, but I'm also happy because I think that means that we're going to get more movieology, a podcast that I personally love. I hope so. I've been asking. I've been bugging him. You know, I I, I, I talk to him almost every day via instant message, and I uh, I mentioned uh, just the other day, I said, where is movieology, man? You were supposed to be going over there and getting this thing going now. What What's going on? I mean, that's kind of like one of the things, the reasons that you left the Movie Bite podcast because you wanted to focus more on movieology. Where is it? Oh, well. Yeah, I don't know. It's just coming. We're going to get to it. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, crack, so. crack the whip. Crack the whip. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, as the runner of all things Movie Bite, I really need to get that whip uh, over there to uh, the Atlanta area, the Powder Springs area, and get to cracking on that. So, uh, but anyway, um, so we're going to dive right in here and uh, talk about a few trailers. In a world. In a world. 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 In a world. This week, the new trailers are Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2 trailer, Wizard of Oz IMAX 3D trailer, uh, the RIPD featurette, and I posted a trailer with that as well, the Wolverine train fight sequence, uh, newest Pacific Rim trailer, and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. promo uh, featuring uh, one of the agents from the show, Agent, uh, Grant Ward. So let's start with the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Uh, who's looking forward to this? I am. Yeah, I am. I'm as well. So you guys are fans, and I I am not really. I, I guess I shouldn't say that. It just looks so stupid that I never, never watched it. Flint? Sam, big news! I'm going back to Swallow Falls to destroy the Flintstone which is creating deadly food monsters who are trying to learn to swim so they can attack Lady Liberty. <laughs> so it just looks <laughs> so crazy, silly. I mean, this 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 trailer for I mean, the second film doesn't appear to. Uh, doesn't appear any better to me than the first one, but now that I'm running Movie Bite, I kind of have to go see films whether I like them or not. So, or whether I like the looks of them or not, I can't really wait to see what people are saying about it. So, um, what, what is it that you guys liked about the first one? Well, I think the silliness really worked for it in the first one. You know, when I was a kid, the Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs book was something that I constantly checked out of the library. I, I, I mean, I literally, I, I probably went and checked it out at least two or three times a school year back in elementary school. And so seeing it on the big screen, even though it wasn't necessarily a close adaptation of the book, uh, seeing that world sort of come to life and the silliness of it was lots of fun. I thought there was lots of great character development. And no, no, Chad, you're telling me this is based on a book? It is. Here, well, I'll, I'll try and... 
look it up real quick. What the heck? What what kind of? <laughs> no, no, it, it seriously is a book. But I mean, uh, but Chad's right. I mean, it's not like a close like adaptation or anything but it's dead on it is silly but i think the silliness really works for it it's great character development it's a heartwarming story and the silliness only kind of adds to it it's almost everything i could want in an animated feature and even though i'm looking forward to the second one i i am kind of worried it kind of has a jurassic park 2 kind of feel to it um or like maybe the the funny things in the first one kind of become gimmicks in the second one. So I'm hoping there's, I'm hoping there's that same story there that really drew me in um, and kind of made me forget that I was watching like, you know, something that's supposed to be directed or uh, kind of poignant for kids. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I, I really can't speak to it other than to say this trailer doesn't look any good to me either. But um, you know, I, I fully admit that I, you know, I've 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 watched trailers even this year for films that I wasn't that excited about the films, and they were much better than I would have expected. So maybe I'm not a great judge of trailers. Maybe maybe that's what I should should be looking at. Maybe I'm not maybe I'm not judging these trailers correctly, and I tend to like the films better. And then I've seen trailers I was really excited about, and and the films turned out to be gross and and stupid. So, um, you know, I well, you know, just when we talked about last week, um. Uh, World War Z is kind of the same way. Like I wasn't drawn into that, and yet it was a pretty decent film, you know. And uh, no, I completely agree with you there. I I really thought I was going to dislike World War Z, and I had to really kind of take a step back and say this is not supposed to be like the book, you know, and kind of shed my expectations, forget what I saw in the trailers, and just go in with a with a clean slate. And I, and I think if I would have had those expectations or I would have really held on to what the trailer was kind of showing the movie to be, that I would have not enjoyed it as much as I did. So trailers can be deceiving, and it's it's one of the hardest things because one of the things I really like about Movie Bite is I, can, I know when the, the latest trailers come out, but at the same time, I'm very hesitant to watch many of the trailers because I don't want to know. I don't want it to be spoiled and or the hype to be too high. Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on that. Um, so to some extent, if, if, if the studio is putting it out there, you kind of got to go with it. I mean, you know, especially for somebody who's running a website about movies and, and people, no. want, people want it. And, and in the end, it's all about making money. And the, the studios know that in order to draw people into the theater, they got to put out trailers. So... Well, I think if you take a look at what you've kind of observed over the the release of the Pacific Rim trailers, I think one of the best things we can learn about trailers is who the target audience is, who they think the movie is going to sell to. And I, I love uh, watching that that kind of evolution of what P- Pacific Rim is supposed to be about based on the trailers. So, Yeah, they've definitely drawn me in more lately with Pacific Rim. But uh, anyway, back to Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs uh, 2. You know, I'm going to have to see Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. When is this coming out again? Did I put that in the article when I posted the trailer? Uh, I want to say October because I think I put it on my calendar. Yeah, it looks like I, I I failed to do that. I usually try to September put the release 27th. September 27th. September so, <sighs> 27th. So close. Between now and then, I have to see Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I, I guess, in order to get myself prepared. So um, we'll see. We'll see. So, Wizard of Oz, IMAX 3D trailer. This is the original Wizard of Oz uh, from 19... what? And who might you be? 39. If you please, I am Dorothy. So, um, this film, uh, as you said, 39, that's right. This film came out in 1939. Uh, it was... It was not the first color film, but it was way early in that range, and they, they did something interesting, too. They transitioned uh, when they went into the, the dream sequence. 
uh, into or into the whether it's a dream or not into the uh, world of Oz uh, transitioned into from black and white into color, which was a very interesting technique, especially for the time. Um, I don't really. I'm I'm going to I'm, I'm going to offend probably everyone on planet Earth. I don't really like this film. And I'll, I'll admit that this is probably because I saw it so many times as a kid that it just got old and I never want to see it ever, 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 ever again. Certainly not an IMAX 3D. You guys want to mm-hmm. you guys want to reach through the Skype and kill me here? No, I, I mean, I yeah. can definitely understand people's disdain for it sometimes. It, it is one of those things that sort of grinds on you the more you watch it. But I think this trailer did a really good job of sort of bringing me back to what I really liked about it. And it, there's lots of nostalgia. And the opening with uh, Over the Rainbow was really well done. And mm. though I'm not too excited about the 3D, I, I'm yeah, I, I'm excited to see it yeah. on the IMAX. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I've never really been a Wizard of Oz fan, so I'm not going to be the first person to lambaste you. I mean, I I try to like it. I realize that it has a lot of merits as a film, but I think the only time I ever enjoyed watching this movie was, I think, in high school. My my history professor pointed out that it was like an allegory for the populist movement, and being an aspiring history major, I watched it one time and said, this is amazing, and now I don't ever have to watch it again. So... (laughs) Chad, go ahead. Oh, I was just laughing. Okay, I thought you said I thought you were saying something. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, so yeah, I mean, I have no desire. It's interesting. Like, I would kind of like to see it in IMAX, but I'm not going to go see it in IMAX 3D because I just I I hate 3D so much. I'm not going to do that. But if it were just showing in standard IMAX, I'd probably go see it to see how it holds up. You know, my, my general feeling about some of these older movies, I I like some older movies. There there are some older movies that I really really enjoy. Uh, 1932, Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, great film like it a lot. It's a little cheesy, like like some of those older films are, but I like it a lot. This film, I feel like, just didn't overcome the cheesiness of the time and live up to the the expectation that you would expect today, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I know that sounds a little bit petty, but that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, something about the acting and the the goody-goody two-shoesness of, of Dorothy, and I, I don't know. I just, I don't care for it. Well, I have a question for you, TJ. Go ahead. Um, do you think the success or failure of the wizard of Oz being put back in the theater will kind of determine if we get more of this stuff. Like, you know, are we going to start seeing like the Charlton Heston classics come back in IMAX 3d? I don't know. know? I I don't know. It's possible because I know there are lots and lots of people out there that love these older films. And, and I, I went and saw, um, uh, the Indiana Jones film in IMAX and I loved it. It was great. It, It was wonderful return to that old film and, and loved seeing it on, on the IMAX big screen. It held up so well. And I know that's not as old of a film, but, but the concept is good. And if it's a good movie, um, as far as whether, whether the success of this or not will affect that, I'm sure it will. I mean, certainly Disney, and, and other studios will be looking at this and going, well, that did pretty good. We, we probably ought to put some more of these old things in the box office and take them for another spin around the block. I mean, that certainly seems to make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I, I certainly would if I were, you know, the, the uh, you know, in charge of these studios. But, oh, yeah. Being you know, about the almighty dollar does seem kind of the way they're going. Yeah, for sure. So, Wizard of Oz, IMAX 3D, eh, I mean, I'm not going to go see it, but, you know, for people who love the film, I certainly understand. Uh, I'm more interested to see what happens with this new round of, of Wizard of Oz films. So, the Rest in Peace Department, RIPD featurette, and I did post the official trailer with this. Uh, here's This is from the official trailer. Come on, if it'll play. 
I wanted to get to a specific part of the trailer. I forgot where it was at. Here we go. Tough day. Where am I? You're dead. This is a joke. <laughs> so I'm actually kind of interested in this film. Uh, this this trailer and this this uh, featurette really kind of piqued my curiosity a little bit more. Um, I, I think that it's certainly going to be um, over the top, uh, you know, sort of in a way, some of, the, some of that same over the topness that we've seen in Pirates of the Caribbean, and I love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you guys think? Um, does it remind anybody else of Men in Black? That's exactly what oh, I was going to say. For sure, no, no doubt, no doubt. But I love Men in Black too, you know, just for the goofiness of it. There, there's a way to do funny and goofy, and I think that Men in Black hit it, and I feel like maybe this film has a chance of hitting it. I don't know. I'm not hearing a lot of enthusiasm from you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it could be fun. It's not something that I'm really looking forward to, but I'll probably end up seeing it just for, uh, like Jody said in the chat room, a good popcorn movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I can't wait to watch this when it's on Netflix, probably like three months after it hits the theater or 10. I know yeah. it's hard for me to believe. I don't know. I, I'm very, I'm very skeptical about this film. It just looks on Ryan Reynolds track record. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how he's going to bring Jeff Bridges down and I just feel like he's going to do it. I'm, I'm <laughs> just, not, just not interested in this film at all. And, and I hate it because I really want to like it. But yeah. this, is, this is what we we're talking about earlier, the, the, the trailers, you know, the, the, this trailer makes me think that this is a men in black ripoff, that there's no way that I will actually enjoy it because it's just basically stealing from a whole bunch of other things. Not that lots of movies aren't that, doing that, but. Well, I mean, everything's a remix, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Everything is a remix. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying on the one hand, but I hear this a lot, and it kind of kind of bothers me that that uh, because there's certain there's only so many ways to tell a good story. Yeah, I mean, I know there's lots of different ways, but in the end, a good story is made up of certain elements that that make it a good story. And I and I think you know, as a Christian, I think that's directly related to the the, the order of the you know the universe that God has put together. But regardless, well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And regardless, there is only a certain amount of a certain number of ways you can tell a good story. So I don't mind the 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 idea that it might it might be taking some elements from some of those uh, other films that we've I've loved. So I don't know. That doesn't bother me. But I, but I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Did you have anything? The great, the, the great mediator. I, I appreciate you, TJ. <laughs> Do you have anything <laughs> to add, Chad? Uh, no. Um, Jody just mentioned in the the uh, chat room that Jeff Bridges is doing his Rooster Cogburn, and I definitely got that sort of feeling. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, is is it just me, or is he getting harder to understand? Maybe it's just oh. the role. Maybe it's the beard thing he's got going on. He's- but he, I... I I, I think he's putting on that. Him. I think he's putting on that southern drawl because I didn't have that much of a hard time understanding him in Iron Man. So I think it's just yeah. this role that he's in. But I, yeah. I thought it was fun. I think fun. it works. And Jeff Bridges is always lots of fun. So maybe maybe that'll be really good seeing him. Uh, I am a little bit wary of Ryan Reynolds, but I think the film could have merit. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll so. see. You guys aren't as excited about it as I am, so that's okay. It's okay. And, and, you know, it could be one of those things where I'm severely disappointed by the end result, even though I like the trailer. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty bad judge of those things. I think time is already proven, so. It happens. All right, the Wolverine, uh, the train fight sequence, uh, it, it uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like the look nice of this go. clip. And that's a, that's a shame, because I want I to like this film. I want it to be a good film. 
but I had a really hard time, and, and this really kills me about about modern films, is I had a really hard time following the action, and I want to be able to follow the action. You know, I I think there's a good way to do action, and this this wasn't it. Watching it earlier, it didn't seem like there was a lot of action, and that's what I think really threw it off. They they did a lot of the action camera things, but really the whole sequence is just them sticking pointy things into the top of a train and jumping over things that are getting in their way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, hopefully there's more than just that in the film, and I'm sure there will be with a character like Wolverine, but this featurette didn't make me any more excited to see this film. <laughs> no. Yeah. I kind of feel like they wanted me to feel after I watched this clip, like I did the the time I watched the, the scene in the matrix when they, when they, you know, when they go into the, the building in the bottom floor and fight the security guards yeah, yeah that's, that scene you'll never forget because the action was just so crazy and did something that no one's ever done. And I watched it and I kind of said, meh. How long has it been since you've watched that scene in that film in The Matrix? Uh, it's probably been almost a year. I okay. usually end up seeing it about once a year. Yeah, I, I try to watch The Matrix once a year because it is my favorite film in all, all the universe. Um, but But if you watch that fight sequence i think what so many people forget is that you were able to follow the action it wasn't i mean it it was great it seemed crazy because it was good choreography and and it oh, seems no, i completely agree with that yeah, yeah and, and it seems like they're forsaking good choreography uh in order to to just sh- you know shake the camera up and stuff it really drives me nuts it just drives me absolutely bonkers that they do that was so. that something similar to what you felt when you were watching like the fighting in superman or Man of Steel, I'm sorry. For sure, yeah, absolutely. I, I felt the same way in Man of Steel. The action was not all that followable, for sure. It, it, you know, it's a very trendy thing to do. I mean, they really kind of started that with uh, Born 2 uh, and, and really went way over the top with Born 2. Uh, that film could could have been so much better. Agreed. But, um, you know, and, and they backed off of it a little on Born 3, but unfortunately they really, I think, it feels to me like that film really set a precedent that other films now feel like they have to follow. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And I think that's the trend for like, it was so awesome because I couldn't understand it. You know, people are moving too fast. Uh, I am just a mere mortal when it comes to hand fighting. But these people (laughs) are super, you know. Right, right. Well, well, Jody mentions in the chat room uh, about m- maybe X-Men is losing their steam. And, you know, it, I, I kind of agree. And I, I, I want them to reclaim it, but I don't know that they're going to be able to because X-1 was really, really good. I, I Like, that was the first superhero film probably I've really enjoyed. And, and then X-2 was even better. Like, I think that may be the best X-Men film. X-3 was terrible. Uh, and then we'll, we'll see what's come after. They've done the X-Men Origins thing. Eh, kind but of first okay. class? Yeah, X-Men First Class is kind of okay. Um, X The first Wolverine movie, eh, you know, eh, kind of okay. You know, so I, I'm just not feeling it, though. I'm not feeling it like I did with the first two films. But this is, you know, Brian Singer's coming back for, um, no, no, no. For, isn't First Class the one that's about to come out? I get confused. Their naming is no. so messed up. Days of Future play. Past. Days of Future Past. Thank you. Thank you, Chad. Um, you know, that's bringing Brian Singer, Singer back, who directed the first two, so maybe that'll be good. But this, I don't know, this Wolverine film, I want it, I want it to be good and I want to like it, but I'm not feeling it. So, I don't know. We'll see. And this could be me, be me misjudging the promo material again. And we're only getting a little glimpse. Like, maybe that's the only shaky cam work in the film, but that's unlikely. So, let's move on to Pacific Rim and see what we have here. We always thought alien life would come from the stars. But it 
came from deep beneath the Pacific Ocean. The first kaiju made land in San Francisco. So uh, I've I've started out each one of these trailers talking about my views. So why don't we start with one of you guys? One of you fight and die. You know, flip a coin, dive in. Chad always wins. Go, oh, okay. Um, I don't know. It's still not looking that appealing to me. Uh, it doesn't seem like my kind of film. Um, it's it's it still looks like Transformers on steroids to me. But yeah. that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some merit in it somewhere. Um, I'm a little bit confused what it's about. I mean, the, the latest trailers uh, in this one especially is done uh, a lot to make that easier. So I do understand a little bit more what the film's about, but it's just not something that's up my alley necessary necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there was a big shift in the marketing too. I don't think people responded well. It wasn't tracking well and they weren't responding well to the, the big crash em up monster monster thing. Like then, and that certainly was what was turning me off. And, and, and so I think the confusion comes that now there's been a shift in the marketing, right? Where they're trying to make it more appealing to those who want more plot like me, who, who I don't care about the monsters, the, the transformers aspect. I don't want to see another Michael Bay film. That's I hate Michael Bay's films except for one. <laughs> so, right. um, and I feel like that—that's a fluke. The um, the island, which is a great film, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I feel like like they've had the shift in the marketing now. Whether the film will actually reflect that is is uh, is, is questionable to me. But they've certainly drawn me in a little more and more recently with some of this more marketing and promos and, and trailers towards the human element. Um, ben in the chat room says that he saw Pacific Rim last night and he loved it, and uh, he was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. So, uh, you know, uh, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Mike, what do you what do you think? Well, I mean, for me, it's fifty percent nostalgia, fifty percent like guilty pleasure almost. Uh, I, I love like apocalyptic, over the top kind of things, and so. Normally, I would kind of be hesitant, maybe not go see it in the theater. But when you put Guillermo del Toro behind it, and I saw what he did with Hellboy, Hellboy, Hellboy 2, and Blade 2, I mean, those films were over the top. They were slightly ridiculous. But I thought when I watched it, I was like, somehow I'm kind of accepting ridiculous as normal and it, and just kind of going with it. And so I'm hoping that when I'm watching Pacific Rim, I know I'm watching like some kind of, like I said, nostalgic Ultraman Voltron, you know, kind of conglomeration fighting big sea monsters. And I'm hoping, I don't think that I'm watching a movie while I'm doing it. And if I can enjoy that, then I'll be happy that I paid however much money is too much money to see a movie these days. Yeah. I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, they have faith in, in Guillermo del, del Toro. And so they're going to, they're going to wait and see whether this film will be any good. Although I've heard some hesitation, even from people who are fans of Guillermo del Toro, who think, well, this isn't looking quite like a Del Toro film, uh, but but yet they trust Del Toro. And my problem may be that I just haven't seen any Del Toro films. I know Corey's going to kill me. He's one of our contributors and <laughs> listeners, and he's going to, as soon as he hears this episode, he doesn't listen live, but he'll he'll catch it on the podcast. And Corey, I'm sorry, man, but I've just not right, seen so- any Del Toro films. He, um, you know, he's pointed out to me that I should see Pan's Labyrinth, which I plan to do, uh, and he loves that film. He, I think he wrote a review for it on the site, if I'm not mistaken. So it, it's okay, TJ. I haven't seen any of his films either. Okay, good. Um, any, any, neither of you have seen any Del Toro films. I have not, unless you count The Hobbit. Well, that's Ugh. not a Del Toro film. No, it's not. But he did a lot of work. He on did. It. He was supposed to direct it, and then he never. Right, right. That, that, that's all I meant. 
I don't think less of either of you. I'm just really surprised. <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to be seeing Pacific Rim, so uh, I'll have seen a Del Toro film at that time. All right, let's see. we got one more in here, and this is one that I'm really excited about, and I failed to get it queued up as we were talking, so give me a second. Uh, ooh, it's a Flash video, which means I can't play it in Safari. I have to open it in Chrome because I don't have Flash installed, and I'm talking to fill up the space. Here we go. <laughs> This is Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Level 7 Access. Meet Agent Grant Ward. What does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for, Agent Ward? Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. And what does that mean to you? I mean, someone really wanted our initials to spell out S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. And that is very, very Joss Whedon-y. Have you, have, are either of you... I already know you're not, Chad. Uh, Mike, uh, are you familiar with Buffy and or Angel and or Firefly? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. I think I've watched Buffy twice, Angel once, and Firefly. I, I don't have that many fingers and toes. Okay. So. Okay. Well, is that line not the most weedney line you've ever heard? <laughs> well, if it's not the most weedney line, it's it's very, you know, in that ballpark. Yes. You know, it's, it's got his fingerprints all over it. And, and that, this is exactly why I'm looking forward to this, especially the pilot, because he, di- he directed the pilot. But he's going to have his hands in the whole pie over the course of the first season for sure. And so I am I am very much looking forward to Agents of Shield. I mean, I think this is going to be awesome. Of course, it's going to be the Marvel Universe expanding upon uh, upon the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, I've loved every almost everything they've done, um, eh, with the exception of Thor. I guess is really eh, you know didn't didn't care for that film so much. Uh, what What do you guys think? I'm very very excited for this. And one thing that was great about this uh, little promo was seeing a little bit more of Coulson again. Of course, and, yes. Uh, I, I've I mean, it's no secret now, obviously, that he didn't die in the Avengers somehow. And I never did think he died in the Avengers. See, I did, um, but... Yeah, I, did too. I don't know. I, I thought they played it very well in the film where you didn't see him die. You didn't see the medical guys confirm he was dead. It was told over the phone. And so I always had that sneaking suspicion that he wasn't gone for sure. Well, it's certainly not the first time that Whedon has pulled somebody back out of the grave. I mean, you know, Angel, the spinoff series Angel, the character died at the end of the third season. I'm a hardcore Buffy fan. Why don't I remember which season this is? Um, I believe it was the end of the third season. If not, it was the end of the second. Anyway, um, he, he died, and what do you know? They brought him back because they wanted to do a spinoff series. So this is not the first time Whedon's pulled somebody back from the dead by any means. So... Um, and, and, you know, I, I think you're right. I think that's probably the explanation. Although they haven't given the official explanation. I don't believe, uh, but, but that's probably the explanation is, well, you know, and, and they did set it up. I mean, looking back on it, they certainly set it up so that agent Colson didn't have to be dead, but that was certainly your impression walking away is that he really was dead. I just kind of yeah. assumed since it was a Whedon film that someone in Avengers had to die. Oh yeah. You know? and, and I expected and, somebody in Avengers two will die because that's just yeah. what you do. <laughs> that's what Whedon does. Right. Um, and in fact, he's, he said, um, you know, when, 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 when asked, how do you make this thing, how do you make Avengers two bigger and better than Avengers one? He says, you don't make it bigger. You, you go in deeper and, and you really, you know, you squeeze and see what you can do to the characters. And that is a very Whedon thing to say. And, and it's really, frankly, even though sometimes we hate Whedon for killing our favorite characters, it's ultimately why we like him is because he, it's very high stakes and very good, right. very good writing. That man, sure. that man can write. Let me tell you. So, well, and, and that, that in and of itself, I mean, like, I would be a self-professed like Whedonite or whatever it is. So, no matter how 
this is one of those examples of no matter how the trailer looks, I'm going to watch this show. Sure. I'm going to love this show. Absolutely. And I'm going to, I'm going to defend it if it kind of has like a slump in season one, because I'm going to say it's going to get better. This is or kinda, it's going to be awesome. It's kind of a sidetrack, but have uh, you, you, you watched all of Firefly, right, Mike? Yes. Did you watch Serenity? Um, yes. This, this is, I mean, like, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but like my, on New Year's Day, I said, there's no better way to start the year. I had about 20 friends over and we watched the entire season of Firefly and finished with Serenity that night. So that was the first day of this year, because I, I feel like if you're going to start the year, get on the right track, do it the right way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hear you. I, I, I love Firefly. I didn't feel like Serenity was Whedon's best work. I, I felt like it was not that good chad have you seen it by any chance no well okay you, you, can, you can step into the other room for a moment okay <laughs> you're in the doghouse man be right back this is okay firefly <laughs> is must-see tv dude <laughs> well the, the the thing about serenity to me is that it made me very very sad that firefly was canceled uh, because i saw about three seasons worth of material in one movie oh yeah for sure and so i mean like the one of the one of the only real letdowns to me was that I, I felt like I was robbed as like a science fiction westerny Joss Whedon fan of something that could have been you know already I think is probably one of the greatest uh, TV shows in history. Absolutely, and and it's sad to see that Fox really it's really Fox's fault. I mean, they just killed it. You know, they they did stupid things, and you know, the air episodes out of order, and and the series was very much a, a show that you need to watch in order to to get the character development. I mean, all of Whedon's shows are that way because of the character development. And even even if there's no overarching plot, the character development dictates that you watch the things in order. Uh, yes, I Chad. Agree. Yes, Chad. As you 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 pasted in the chat room, thinking I wouldn't see this is going to be your catchphrase. <laughs> it's on my list. <laughs> we have to get you caught up. So I will someday. Joe told me he listened to last week's podcast and he says, I didn't, he, 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 you know, he likes to rib me. He said, I didn't think anybody had seen less movies than TJ until I heard Chad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for people who profess to be movie guys, you know? So, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's agents of shield looking forward to that. So let's move on. Uh, and before we get to our review of despicable me, we have a few things we want to talk about. And, uh, the first thing that comes up is David Chen compares the Superman and the man of steel soundtracks and, uh, great analysis from David Chen as usual, even though half the time I do not agree with his analysis and opinions on films. I, I always enjoy listening to how he thinks about it. And, and, you know, he does the slash film cast. He's the primary host and, recommend that you at least check that out of course don't do it at the expense of movie bite podcast but you know slash filmcast is a good good one to to check out you'd have to be aware they don't keep it clean like we do that's their prerogative uh so um but but i i thought that uh this was really um a really interesting analysis i uh, you know it, it sounded to me like he really liked um man of steel soundtrack as much as john williams original score i'm, I'm not on that page at all <laughs> So, uh, I know Chad, you're, you're, you're going to, um, you, I think, think you're one of the ones that will dispute me on this. I will for, for, for once. I mean, you know me, I'm a huge John Williams fan. I, I own several of his scores and which, nine which times interestingly, out of 10. Interestingly, I'm not, but. Right. And that, that, that's, it's a weird flip flop this time around. Cause as much as I love John Williams score and theme to the original Superman film, I thought that. Zimmer knocked it out of the park here and watching this video was really interesting because um, like I said I do enjoy both and he didn't necessarily 
show a preference of one or the other, but he talked about how Williams' music was all about arriving and Superman was coming and it was more of a here I am, uh, that kind of music, whereas uh, Man of Steel is here I come, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting comparison. And uh, since I am a musician, um, the idea or talking about the the intervals that Williams uses, he uses lots of fifths and octaves and all these perfect intervals. And Zimmer sort of plays all around those. And uh, it's it's just this really interesting approach from both composers. And he talks about the percussion that Zimmer used and uh, the the 12th percussionist he used. And I don't know. I, I thought that both are very, very good. But Zimmer did win this battle for me for once. Uh, it, it is interesting while I'm thinking about it, and then I'll let Mike chime in here. Um, I did notice that uh, – I, I don't know um, what uh, David Chen's musical background is. He mentioned it was in 4-4 time, so I started counting the time, and I'm pretty sure that was 3-4 time, but I could be wrong. Anyway, did you notice that? Chad, um, as a musician? It depends on it depends on the tempo you take. If you took the faster tempo, you could definitely feel it in four. I didn't try the three, um, but if you took it at a little bit slower tempo, it's definitely possible that you could feel it in that. Well, hang on, hang on. I'm going to cue this up, and and I want to I want to see if I can find that uh, part where he talks about that. Oh, now I'm stuck though. I can't move on past this great music. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Dave Chen from SlashFilm.com. Okay, I don't want to. Let's see. Let's go straight into Hans Zimmer's score for Man of Steel. Sorry, David, I'm not this trying to play your. What are you not trying to, to steal your stuff here? The world, which I think condenses <laughs> a lot of the themes and motifs. In- right, I'm trying to find a part where. Okay. Now you'll notice immediately. Uh, one, two, three. 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 One, two. But it's heavily syncopated. I can't hear the soundtrack very well because he's talking over it. One, two, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two. And then- anyway, I don't know. I, I just thought that his he said four, four, and then he started counting in three, four times. So I don't know. Well, he, it was the sort of syncopation that Zimmer uses. You have the one, the two groups of three and then the group of two, and then you repeat it. Okay. And so you could divide that into two fours, or you could divide it. So that would be four, four time, but you could divide it into a uh, fast three, four, three, four, two, four, if you wanted to. So it's, it's just... Uh, matter of interpretation really i don't know how he wrote it on the sheet music or if he did write it on the sheet music um but I'm sure he did it, it's just interpretation all right I'm, I'm geeking out about the music stuff i i am i used to be a musician i'm not anymore so uh mike what do you cool. what did you have to think about uh um the 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 video and the music in general from both superman and man of steel well, I, I love listening to people talk about music. I actually feel that maybe you and I should go into another room and we should let the audience just kind of listen to Chad talk about this for a while. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, because I'm a musician as well, probably not. I mean, to the level that Chad is, but like, so I enjoy music. I understand what it brings um, to a film, but for me, I'm kind of like I, I own the Last of the Mohicans soundtrack. Um, Superman yeah, was cool. I mean, like. One. You know, it's just like whatever chances wins for me, and I enjoy, I enjoy <laughs> just because I enjoy learning things. But I mean, as far as like one versus the other, I thought they both did a really great job of like accenting both the films they were in. So comparing them kind of seems like apples and oranges to me because it's okay. well, not saying, hey, I want to put this film over this music or this music over this other film. It's yeah. just kind of saying which one's better. I think it's pretty subjective. Yeah, I mean, I think I am in the minority of, of feeling the way I do about the new music, and I think it's largely colored by my dislike of the film. 
So, I, I mean, because I, I, I didn't have any strong feeling against it. I have to admit, I mean, I, I had, I, I, I walked into this with bias because I love the first Superman movie. I love John Williams' score. It's, it's one of the few films that I love his entire score of the whole movie. Um, and I certainly love the theme for Superman that John Williams wrote. And, and I feel like, why couldn't we pay some homage to it? Why couldn't you at least allude to it? You know, I mean, I know you're trying to do a new thing, but at least allude to the old, old a little bit, you know? And, I mean, even even though there wasn't much of it in Star Trek, they did it in Star Trek. You know, uh, Michael Giacchino did it in Star Trek. Why can't, you know, Hans Zimmer do it in Man of Steel? It's just frustrating to me. I could get with that. Yeah, so. Yeah, I understand, but I don't know. I, I really like that Zimmer did sort of avoid Williams. I think um, Star Trek, well, I, I don't know. I'm not much into Star Trek as far as the older stuff goes, as I've revealed, because I haven't watched it. But, um I love Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack. I have it on vinyl, and I listen to it pretty oh, wow. often. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're, uh, you're a true music geek if you have vinyl. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm you know I'm I consider myself a music geek, but I all my collection is digital just because of the ease of of you know knowing that it's backed up on my hard drives and being able to put it on my iPod and and, and that sort of thing. So. See, most of my stuff is digital, but there's something about vinyl that I just love. Yeah, well, I certainly like the sound of it. I mean, I, I'm still yeah. a film f- film purist because I'm a filmmaker. I'm still a f- film purist, even though I've never right. actually personally shot on 35 millimeter. I love the look of it. But anyway, so speaking of Man of Steel, uh, Russell Crowe says he would be interested in doing a Man of Steel prequel. What do you guys think about this idea? Why? I, uh, I mean, what, what Why does anybody ever do a prequel? Is there? I mean, sure, money. Let's give them more money. But I, I, just, I just don't understand the appeal of a prequel story to Superman. I mean, what, what story is there to be told? Oh, I understand it. I mean, I think the only prejudice I have against it is I didn't like the film, and I want to go start over yet again and try to do it right this time. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, I understand, the, the, especially with the, the, one of the things I did like about Man of Steel is the new look of Krypton. Really, really liked uh, the world building that was going on there. So I wanted more of that. Um, and, and I can totally get down with the idea of a prequel. Well, I'm say I, that's, I, I like, that's probably the only reason that I would be down with a prequel here too, because one of my favorite parts of the movie was the stuff that was happening on Krypton. Absolutely. That whole, that whole reimagined part. So if it wasn't for that, if they were, you know, if Russell Crowe had just shown up and kind of been like the, uh, the, what Jor-El of the, Kind of like the first films, where he, you know, it's a floating face, kind of not really involved as much. Then I probably wouldn't be interested. But seeing as how that was some of the movie that I actually enjoyed, yeah, I really like Russell Crowe's Jarrell. I guess that's why I would be interested yeah. in a prequel. Right, I, I agree. I, I did like Russell Crowe. I just don't see what story could be told, and it it would be cool to see more of Krypton. But I don't know. Maybe if they did it the right way. Well, it could I mean, be really good. in this in this rendition, obviously, um, Jarrell was already fighting a battle. He he decided that they needed to have a son naturally, and and that you know they didn't have any of that going on anymore on Krypton, and and he'd already there's already been a lot of stuff that happened that we really don't know exactly. And yeah, I love that idea, Jody. In the chat room, he says uh, it could be called Krypton: The Last Days. I love that idea. It, you know, I I certainly like the idea of not knowing where a film is going and and being surprised by the plot. But that doesn't always have to be the case. And obviously, in a prequel, that's almost never the case. It's right. hard to surprise you with the prequel, the ending of a prequel, and that's fine. Sometimes it's about the story. 
you know? So I would be interested. I, I'm not saying I would like it because I didn't like Man of Steel. <laughs> so I, I'm ready to fire Zack Snyder immediately and get somebody else. But the box office tells a completely different story from my opinion. So, <laughs> Right. Um, and, and, you know, people seem to like it, even if it didn't receive mixed critical reception. So let's see what else we have here. <clears throat> Riddick TV spot featuring Vin Diesel. Are you guys Riddick fans? No. No. <laughs> Okay. Is anybody a Vin Diesel fan? Like, uh, you mean like Iron Giant Vin Diesel? Oh yeah, the, uh, I, I didn't know if anybody else would know that. Yes, I love Iron Giant. Or like Saving Private Ryan, Vin Diesel, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. So, like outside of that, not really. Do you, do you want to hear something interesting about me? Your your uh, your humble host. I do. Yeah. I have only seen Vin Diesel that I can remember or know of in one film. And that was very, very recently. And I did not like the film. Right. It was fast. You saw a fast and furious. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Fast six. And I didn't like it at all. Um, so I mean, but, but it wasn't because of Vin Diesel, I have to say, I mean, I thought his acting was fine and, and, and I've heard from many people that Riddick is something that's interesting and awesome. Uh, I saw that, uh, Katie Sackhoff is in, uh, in this, uh, Riddick film that's coming up and I enjoyed her Lieutenant Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica. So, Mm -hmm. you know, well, I'll tell you this about the, the Riddick stuff. Like I went to see pitch black in the theater um, when I was in college and I disliked almost every single minute of it. <laughs> but since then, like so many people that I know, like in the, the geek realm or the, you know, like the nerd culture realm have really started backing the entire Riddick series that I'm very interested in going and watching like all the stuff that's out yet or up to this point. Um, and maybe seeing if I have a, a fresh set of eyes on it or, you know, Maybe there was something I was missing, or maybe I was being too critical. Um, I'm at least interested. Now, not like I said, not really a Vin Diesel fan, not really a Riddick from what I remember, but th- there's enough clout behind it that it's piqued my interest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I definitely want to catch up with Riddick. I, I could see it. The, I could see liking it. I just, I'm not familiar with it. So it, it does seem like it would be something I might be interested in. Although it feels like maybe the action is a little much. You know, and, and not enough plot. I don't know. I don't know. You mean like all the other movies this summer? Yeah. <laughs> That's not entirely true. I thought Star yeah. Trek had a really pretty good plot. Yeah. Even if it had a few um, holes. One more thing about Vin Diesel. You need to see the Iron Giant, TJ. Okay. It's uh, Brad Bird, and it's excellent. Oh, well, then I'm interested. I'm in. And it's yeah. one of the few movies that, like, when you turn it on, I will cry at the end every time. Oh, it's the best. How do you guys feel about the Jungle Book? Any any version of any Jungle Book anywhere? I love the original animated film. That's I've seen that, and I did see the 1994 live-action film several years ago, so I don't remember anything about it. But I don't know. It, I thought it was interesting that they called this one a reboot. Um, well, whereas, the article that I linked to on the playlist calls it a reboot anyway. Right, that's true. Um, so, I mean, is this going to be a reboot of the animated musical? No, no, it's live-action. Right, right. That's what I mean. Are they going to take the animated musical and make a live action version of it? I don't. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine. That would be the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I, I, I think so too. And I just wanted to make sure. I mean, I certainly love the animated Disney film. Uh, it's 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 a fun, clean film. Uh, it's not like you know Shakespeare or anything. <laughs> it's not. No. Gonna, it's not going to be like the best film ever in my list. But it's a fine Disney film. 
Um, there was an old live-action film from 1942 that came before the animated Jungle Book from Disney, and it wasn't so great. Uh, and, and those are the only two Jungle Books I've seen. It's all I know of the Jungle Book um, fran- uh, story. Um, I've never read the book. I'm, I was interested. I didn't even know about uh, the 1994 live-action Jungle Book. That was an interesting time uh, in the Draper house uh, <laughs> when I was that age, uh, when TV was possibly on the way out for us, um, <laughs> as I've, ta- I've, ta- I've alluded to before, so it's not a surprise to people who've listened for a while. Um, so uh, that's probably why I'm not aware of it. But it's interesting because it, you know, it stars uh, Carrie Elwes, uh, Sam Neill, John Cleese, uh, Jason Scott Lee. I mean, that strongly piqued my curiosity. It's on my watch list at this point. Um, so, but but we're going to get a reboot. I'm not sure that we needed that. Did I don't think you so. Guys, either. need that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't I've, I've never it, really, no. and I've never really been a big fan of the Jungle Book, but just that that cast alone makes me want to go see the 1994 one. But unless that cast is in the remake, then. I, don't really think it's necessary. Right. Like, that's the question I have. I don't, do we have enough information to rule out the, that cast being in the new film? Or is, or is it truly a reboot with new characters? Or is it a continuation of the 1994 film? That's that's the question I have on my mind right now. I mean, all these actors are still around. So, you know, although I'm, right. I'm sure, you know, like Sam Neill and John Cleese are probably both going to command more money than they did. You know, haven't heard much from Carrie Elwes lately. So, <laughs> you know, who knows? Probably doesn't command right. that much. <laughs> and uh, but it, it looked interesting. I watched the trailer and it certainly looked like a decent live action Jungle Book. So um, I, I will probably be checking that out in the next, uh, you know, a few years <laughs> when I get around to watching it. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that's that's the news on the Jungle Book is Disney is going to be making a new live action one. So uh, I thought I'd just briefly mention this since we're getting ready to talk about Pacific Rim next week. Um, film.com. Uh, um, don't ask me to pronounce the author's name that wrote this on film.com, but he ran down a list of what he considers the worst to the best uh, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro films. And he did not like uh, Pacific Rim. He thought it was one of Guillermo del Toro's worst films. Uh, but well, according he, according to the article, it said that his editor reviewed it. Oh, true. I just wasn't going and, to and that. And then, but, then yeah. right below it, it had the the note that said, like to that guy's review, and he actually really liked it. Interesting. So, uh, I'm you not know, sure. Well, I'm not sure that would have landed in the same spot. Okay. When I linked it, um, he had not. He had written, "I will be seeing it soon, and I'll give my review." So he may have updated the article. That's interesting. I'm I'm pulling it up now to see that. Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, re- you can read your critic's positive review here. So there you go. Yeah, I didn't mention that because at the time it didn't matter when I linked the article, but they've obviously uh, changed that. So uh, very interesting, um, and I've not seen any of these films. So <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I kind of mentioned most of what I would have to say about it earlier. You know, I enjoy most of the things that he's ever put out. I don't know if I really agree with the the – list as it stands and then you know none of us have seen pacific rim so so uh moving on did you guys need to see hayden christensen in episode eight what am i hearing in in my notes i just wrote no oh yeah <laughs> on the movie by website right before the podcast started i put no just no Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so the argument here is from uh, Ryan Britt on uh, Tor.com. Uh, he argues that we need to see um, Hayden Christensen in uh, episode eight. I wrote sacrilege, blasphemy. <laughs> I do not need to see Hayden Christensen in episode uh, seven. As I say, episode eight, episode seven of Star Wars. I, I, I just don't need that. Don't no, want it. Hey, don't want it. 
the the reason he gave in the article was pretty stupid too. I thought. I mean, totally. He, Luke talking to his father. Hayden Christensen is like fifty years younger than Mark Hamill at this point. That would be so weird. <laughs> well, he argued that that was like something that would be cool and interesting. Well, okay, here I'll read it. If all the actors from the classic trilogy are reprising their roles, the giant space elephant in the room is how old everyone has gotten. Let's get real. The focus of these new films will doubtlessly be on new characters, but it would be nice to have some existing Star Wars characters in there too, particularly ones who don't look super old. Luckily, we don't have to do any Tron Legacy de-aging CG action on Hayden. He looks good. How how satisfying would it be to see an older Mark Hamill as Luke talking to the ghost of his father via the Force? Putting Hayden, Hayden in the context of being the wiser Jedi and making him act with Mark Hamill would force him to up his game. No. No. I wish I had a lead bell sound effect. <laughs> yeah, just no. No matter which way you slice it, it just not does not sound good in any way. You, you know what we really need because this is such a joke is I need a uh, a rim shot. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, if if Anakin Skywalker did pop up in these films at all, whether it was just his Force ghost, I'd want to see an older actor playing him, like the original Ghost in Return of the Jedi. Yep. That's what oh, makes Aiden no, Christensen's no. being replaced as the ghost in Return of the Jedi. So frustrating, I thought. Right, I was about to say, well, you forget that we retrofitted Return of the Jedi in the 2004 DVD release. Right, and that, it, it's awful. <laughs> it's so awful that I can't watch my, my Star Wars Blu-rays without laughing now. Oh, me neither. Gosh. Okay, well, we have to we have to be moving right along, so let's jump into a couple of things you added to the to the uh, outline, uh, Chad. You're not Joe, you're Chad. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a link on Collider.com. Legendary Pictures moves to NBC Universal, and I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to read this because I was I was hastily trying to get the show outline ready when we started, actually. So why don't you t- give us a rundown on this, Chad? Well, you had mentioned a week uh, a week or two ago that Legendary Pictures had ended their deal with Warner's, um, or they were looking to possibly do it, and so officially th- that has happened. Legendary Pictures and Universal Studios have uh, formed a new partnership, and uh, really, I think it's kind of strange timing now that Pacific Rim with Legendary and Warner's comes out in two days, um, but it also raises a question could Batman and Superman eventually be coming to universal parks where uh, Marvel actually already is because that existed before Disney purchased the property. Yikes. Sounds like a mess. And six flags actually already has a deal with DC comics. So, I mean, it's, it's just an interesting push and pull. Which which way is it going to go? What does this mean for universal? What does it mean for six flags? More importantly, what's going to happen to these characters? More importantly, why, why do I as a watcher of movies care? (laughs) Right, and I think I think to some extent the, the reason we care is because what what you know all these deals and studios competing with each other can can be bad for the films. So that that's ultimately why we should care. I think. Did yeah. you? Well, well I, say, I think ultimately the question we're all asking, like deep inside, is when do we get the hangover of the ride? <laughs> I wasn't asking that question. <laughs> deep, deep down, TJ, deep down. I'll, I'll, I'll try to dig deep and see if that's in there, but I'm not feeling it. <laughs> no, don't. Worst ride ever. Yeah, don't care. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I never rode the Batman, but my sister was always kind of the daredevil in our family when we were younger, and so she's ridden it and she loved it. And you know, I, I was always afraid to go upside down. I've only recently gone upside down for the first time on a roller coaster. So, a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, I think it was. So. Anywho, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I hate to see all this moving around and fighting and, and you know, stuff, so. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was the other link you put in here? Is that related? Oh, yes, it was just um, yeah, yeah, okay, I see. A, a, a tweet related to it. Basically, what I just said about Disney and Universal. 
and Six Flags. Yeah. Okay, well, any of you two have any more thoughts on any of that, or shall we move on? I'm good. All right, well, let's talk about Despicable Me 2. Um, Despicable Me 2 opened in theaters on July the 3rd, 2013. It had a budget of $76 million, which is quite low for an animated film of this caliber. It uh, Opening weekend, domestically grossed $85.5 million. It is now already at $316.7 million worldwide. Do you think people like this film? Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah, yeah I would say, I think it's something that people can take their children to, so it's, it's going to make a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, you know, regardless of how I feel about the Despicable Me franchise, which we'll get ah, ads on YouTube. All right, forget it. I'm not going to try to play the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Hate that. Um, yeah, regardless of how I feel about uh, Despicable Me in general, the audiences sure love it, so you know why it's being made. Uh, the critical claim on Rotten Tomatoes is that it is it may not be as inspired as its predecessor, but Despicable Me 2 offers plenty of eye-popping visual and inventiveness and a number of big laughs. Uh, it was directed by Pierre Coffin and Chris Renaud, as the first one was. Writers Ken Dario and Cinco Paul, starring, of course, Stephen Carell, Kristen Wiig, Benjamin Bratt, Miranda Cosgrove, and Russell Brand. Which is, uh, I didn't even know, like, I read that Russell Brand was in this film. Like, who's he playing? Oh, Dr. Nefario? He's playing an old, <laughs> it was kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought that was hilarious, watching the first film. Um, and it really works, too. Yeah, it oh, does. Yeah. It works very great. So, um, very interesting. I wanted to talk, before we get into it, um, I want to talk just a little bit about the general feelings of Despicable Me, the first film. kind of came out of nowhere and took the box office by storm, is my understanding. Um, and lots and lots of people love it a lot. Um, well, go ahead, guys. What, what, tell tell me what you think. Go ahead, Mike. I'm really sad that I originally missed the first film in theaters. I didn't see the first film until I got it for Blu-ray the following Christmas. And, wow, I mean, it blew me away. I didn't expect anything of this caliber to come from the first film. Um, I thought that the voice cast was outstanding, especially Steve Carell as Gru. Um it's endlessly quotable. It's got a high rewatch value. Uh, the animations, crisp. I love all the characters. The villain, uh, Jason Siegel as Vector, is lots of fun. And, I mean, there's lots of heart in it, too. I, I really don't have any bad things to say about the first film. I feel like Chad just basically looked at my show notes and just read what I was going to say. <laughs> well, it's entirely I mean, possible. I mean, he has superpowers. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, I from top to bottom, like, I, I, to a certain degree, had fairly, like, low and or no expectations going into seeing it. And I was completely blown away. The heart that the film had, like I don't think there was any of those unearned moments that we just kind of assume in a children's movie, you know, like people, good people are going to be good people and bad people are going to be bad. It had that kind of, that, that mix and, and the slow grinding of love against, you know, a cold heart. You know, just, and I, I think, it, I think it earned it. And I loved every single character in the movie. You know, I did, the villain was, scary but not like too scary for a child scary i just i really really enjoy the film yeah as far as the first film goes i mean i i purposed not to see it for a, a, a quite a while and i'll tell you the reasoning and and i know that we have an interesting mix of listeners on the show we have christians and non-christians and that's fine that's the way i want it and and but but i am a christian and that affects my worldview and it affects everything i do and my, I, I was not okay with some of the advertising. Well, he may be a bad guy, but that doesn't make him a bad guy. Um, you know, so, that sort of thing. Well, no, I mean, I don't want to call good evil and evil good. That's kind of my default position. And and so I purposed not to see the film. This is before Movie Bite, and so I did not 
see the film until very recently, uh, just in preparation for Despicable Me 2. And I, I still feel like that element exists a little bit because they make light of the villainy. Like, it's okay to be a villain, you know, that that's okay. Even though Gru's moving away from that, it's not that they're really saying, well, that's, that's necessarily a bad thing. In addition, I felt like the humor – I mean – this is the thing, like, Pixar movies have humor, and they're funny, but they're not slapstick, and this film had so much slapstick humor, and I tend to gravitate away from that a little bit, I think, and so I think, you know, and, and on top of top, you know, on top of all that, my bias against it probably kept me from enjoying it all that much. I, I gave it two out of five stars on Letterboxd, uh, where I rate films and to remind myself what I, um, what, you know, what I saw and how I rated them. So that was kind of my feelings on Despicable Me. You know, and I, I have to say, I have to turn it around a little bit and say, yes, despite my misgivings about the whole villainy aspect, you know, Gru did move away from that a little and he's becoming more of a family man. So, well, I mean, the way I see it, Gru never really was a villain. They played it up very well in the first film with his flashbacks to his childhood mm-hmm. that his ultimate goal was to get to the moon. That's what, that's what his goal in life was, was to get to the moon, be this astronaut superhero kind of guy. And that's what the first film was all about for him was getting to the moon and fulfilling a dream he's had since he was a kid. And the villainy aspect of his life sort of framed that into place. And that's, I mean, all, all the villainy, quote unquote, that you see in the first film from Gru is popping kids balloons and freezing people <laughs> to cut in front of them in line at the coffee shop. And I mean, I wouldn't call that villainy. Vector is definitely more along the villainy type, no, but I mean, even I understand. he doesn't isn't evil. Yeah, uh, you, you know, I I don't I I I have to say I enjoyed the humor that came of it, no doubt. Right. <laughs> Um, what I, even if I felt a little guilty for doing so, <laughs> um, and, and Ben makes a great point though, uh, to my point about Pixar versus the slapstick, uh, Pixar develops their humor very intelligently. Despicable me just resorts to fart guns. And, and that's kind of how I feel about despicable me. It just doesn't rise above that very well. And I wouldn't even mind if like that humor was present as long as there was something more intelligent there behind it. And I didn't just didn't feel like there was, especially in Despicable Me, which I didn't rate very highly. So that's that's kind of how I felt, and that's how we all felt, I guess. About uh, I mean, we not not that you all felt the same way I did, but we've all given our opinions on Despicable Me. There, did I did I say that correctly? Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, I'll also say that um, Steve Carell is a bit hit or miss for me. Uh, sometimes I like him, sometimes I don't. Like I was one of the few people in the entire world uh maybe one of 10 that liked get smart um but oh, then I love uh, get smart what's that i love get smart okay mike it's did hysterical you, did you like it i didn't hate it okay i love get smart i thought it was great i'm gonna watch it again i have to watch it again now that i've said it um <laughs> but no it, it's, it was a great film but yet at the same time i hate the office i hate it with a passion like i oh. hate the office and you know and, so steve Carell is very hit or miss for me and that's like the the like the ultimate thing that steve Carell's done right so uh, he's hit or miss, and, and but he really nailed Gru. I mean, just totally, completely nailed it. So um, one thing that's really fun with this film is if you watch the behind scene, the behind the scenes videos on the Blu-ray or the DVD, um, and you, you watch Steve Carell in the recording studio recording his lines for Gru. It's hysterical, just the faces he makes, and uh, actually promoting Despicable Me too. He dressed as Gru and appeared on Ellen, the, the Ellen Show. 
Okay. And uh, can, can that you, was pretty funny, too. That sounds very interesting. Can you put, find the, a link to the video where he's recording lines for Gru and put that in the chat room, and then I'll put that in the show notes as well. Show notes, by the way, I haven't yes. mentioned this yet. Show notes for this episode will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 51. So, um, uh, let's see. I think we've I think that's it for Despicable Me. So, we should move into our uh, review of Despicable Me 2. Uh, and the storyline goes a little something like this. While Gru, the ex-supervillain, is adjusting to family life and attempted honest living in the jam business, the secret Arctic laboratory is stolen. The Anti-Villain League decides it needs an insider's help and recruits Gru in the investigation. Together with the eccentric AVL agent Lucy Wilde, Gru concludes that his prime suspect is the presumed dead supervillain El Macho, whose whose teenage son is also making the moves on his eldest daughter Margot. Seemingly blinded by his overprotectiveness of his children and his growing mutual attention to, attraction to Lucy, Gru seems to be on the wrong track, even as his minions are being quietly kidnapped en masse for some malevolent purpose. So, Chad, why don't you kick us off here? You love the film, I believe. I haven't had a chance to read your review yet because I've been crazy busy, but... <laughs> I didn't love it, um, but I did really enjoy it. And part of the, I, I saw an early screening of this about a week before it came out. And I was in a theater with a whole bunch of little kids in my family. And I was skeptical at first, but the kids were having so much fun laughing at the minions. And it made my experience a lot better. So maybe that affects my opinion a little bit. But uh, I did think that this film largely lives up to the first film but it's definitely not as good as the original was um i think the voice cast is just as great i still really enjoyed the characters minus the villain and um uh, even the little girls elsie fisher who plays agnes the youngest child um was still just as cute despite being a little bit older this time around i Mm -hmm. thought yeah and I really liked Kristen, the, the addition of Kristen Wiig as Lucy. She's very quirky, and her relationship with Gru worked very well. And, I mean, the, the Minions are back, and I know people have mixed feelings on the Minions sometimes, but I think that they're very, very funny, and I'm excited to see their film coming out next year. Yeah, well, I actually like the Minions, so I'm one of the people that likes the Minions. So, uh, yeah. Mike? Uh, I've had too much Minion. I'm Minioned out. Oh, okay. Uh, I can see I, that. Well, I like, and here's the thing. I feel like from what Chad just described, we had a very similar experience at the movie. Uh, I ended up seeing it kind of like a, as a matinee. So it's like middle of the day. People were bringing their kids, you know, and the kids were laughing the entire time at like kind of the slapstick minion stuff. Right. And I, I just was like, this doesn't really, to me, add anything to the story. If you wanted to make, you know, you're going to make a minion movie, save it for the minion movie. Give me enough minion to help me you know, kind of understand what's going on, but I thought it was just too much. I mean, and I think at the, when we had the 21 gun fart gun salute, I kind of almost, I almost checked out. (laughs) That was, was that was, that was over the top for sure. Yeah. It was hard for me to watch. I was hoping something was going to happen so they couldn't actually do it, but it happened. Um, It it did. But, but but lots of the other things, Chad, I mean, I'm, I'm on the same page. Like I I thought Kristen Wiig was a great addition. Uh, I didn't really care for the villain. I didn't really understand why he was doing what he was doing to a certain degree. And I I mean, like from the first time that we saw Dr. Nefario leave at the beginning, because Gru's not really being a villain anymore. I'm like, well, I know where he's going to end up. Same here. Yeah. When I, when I look at this film, I, I say there's a whole lot of things that this film could have been or could have done. And I think it really missed. Um, I think kids are really going to love this movie because it's, I mean, it's silly. You know, there's lots of things for them to laugh at, but 
I thought the things that kind of showed heart in Despicable Me one, the thing that made me so excited about going to see the second installment, I only got about half the movie of, and that's like you know, grew with his children, having a chance to be a father, um, you know, kind of developing a relationship with someone who could eventually become a surrogate mother to those children, um, and we didn't really get any of that. I mean, we got like a, a building on the relationship for you know, for I felt like about about half the movie. And and some of those some of those scenes were amazing. Like I mean, when they're sitting on the step, or when they're sitting on the steps, and you know, Agnes is like, you know, is there anything I can do? Is there anything you can do? And I'm just like, oh, you know, this is a great moment. But why right. am I instead going and watching lots of minion slapstick instead? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, the minions were the minions are both on my like and dislike list. I I, I enjoy the minions for what they are. They're very good comedy, but. Mm-hmm. In, on the other hand, this isn't supposed to be a Minion film. They get that chance next year when yeah. they release Minions, the, oh, the title so, of the film. So there's and, actually I mean, that, a, a Minion film coming? I may oh, even, yes. I, I, It's possible I even knew this now that you say that. It sounds familiar, but I'd forgotten. Yeah, it, it's coming out next year. It's uh, it's supposed to be a sort of prequel to uh, Despicable Me from the, the Minions' point of view before right. they come to Gru. Well, actually, I kind of want to know where do they come from. <laughs> We've never right. gotten that I'll, before. They're just there. I'll post the Wikipedia page in the chat room. There it is. Um, so, I mean, I, I liked the Minions for what they were, but they did take away from this film just as much as they gave, I thought, because it's, it's Gru's movie. The Despicable and Despicable Me refers to Gru. And we didn't get as much of him as we did minions. And that's, I mean, to the movie shame a little bit. I mean, cause I, I like the minions in the first movie. Like I saw, I mean, when I, to a certain degree, kind of you're saying, I, I like some of the stuff that they do in the second movie too. I mean, it's not all just pointless. Some of it's right. funny and, and kind of like adds to, you know, you care about the minions a little more. So when they start disappearing, you kind of have a stake a, as a viewer. But in the first movie, I felt like they had the scene where they go get the unicorn um, yeah. and, and so, but that was their scene. They had that scene and then they kind of like put the exclamation point on a couple scenes in the first movie, but it was never like, Oh, let's follow the minions for a while and let them do silly things. Let's have scenes where you can tell someone said, this will be really funny for the minions to do. So let's have the <laughs> scene just for, I mean like the whole, like him staring at the phone that should have been about Gru. But when I, when that scene ended, I was like, this is about them having firefighter, you know, minions running around. <laughs> This, right. is no longer, this is no longer about him agonizing, you know, whether he should call this girl he really likes. Yeah, that's true. It really, it really was obvious that that was the reason for it. And yet, um, and I did take my son to see Despicable Me Two uh, with me just because he had seen the first one when I watched it, and uh, I like to take my son with me sometimes to the theater, just you know, because I don't spend a lot of time with him. Sometimes I'm working all the time, but um, so I took him with me, and and that's probably his favorite part. <laughs> 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 I heard him. Uh, I heard him making the uh, firefighter minion noise a few times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, uh, I laughed every time they were on screen, but it's not their film. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. I get it. I do like the minions, though. It's uh, but but let's let's talk about uh, specifically the things that we did like about the film, and then we'll talk about our dislikes. So, uh, who would like to? If you haven't, I mean, I know you've mentioned several things you've already liked, but if there's anything you haven't mentioned yet, guys, go ahead. Um. You know, I'm I'm big into the music, and uh, the same guy who did the music for the first film, Farrell Williams and uh, Hightor, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, Hightor Pereira, um, they wrote the music for this film. Uh, Farrell released a few more original songs for this one, just like he did the first one. I thought they were better this time around. Um, I, I, as 
fun as uh, a couple of the songs from the first film are. I didn't care for the lyrics a lot of uh, the time. They were strange. But uh, this time around, CeeLo has a great opening track on the soundtrack. Farrell's songs are very, very catchy and lots of fun. And the score actually got released this time around and it's very good though it's not as good as the score for the first film which unfortunately didn't get a release see that's interesting um i didn't like the score for the first film i i felt it felt very odd it it, it didn't really fit it, it had kind of strange cadences and weird like, like there's a particular like like almost the theme you hear it a lot when Gru's sort of like walking down the the road or when he's getting ready to pop somebody's balloon there's this kind of a, a metallic kind of a clicking uh, it's not it's not like heavy handed or anything, but, but, but I, I don't know how else to describe it. I just, it just felt very odd to me. Uh, but I did feel like the score for this film was better, and it, even though it alluded to some of that, I, I felt like it was better. And you're saying that you like the first score, but film score better. Yes, I like the score from the first one better, but I like the songs from the second one better. Okay, Mike, what have you got? Well, I mean, I mentioned most of the things that I, I, I did enjoy, but I'll, I'll say something else. Even though I, f- I feel like normally in a movie, it probably would have been a little too kind of on the nose for me. I really enjoyed the the Gru's kind of in love, the, the, the realization of love walk, where like everything's perfect and coming up roses and he's catching Frisbees. And then the the kind of loss of that love. And the instant destruction that that can kind yeah, of yeah, I thought that was very, very yeah. well done. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. thought about that before. I didn't put it in my list, but I totally agree. That was a great, great, uh, very Pixarish thing to do. I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I enjoyed it very much. So um, I like I liked moments like that. You know. Yeah, and it did have it did have good character growth for Gru. Um, and and uh, I thought that was very well done. And and uh, that's one of the reasons I like this film better than the first one is because we've kind of moved like like he's not. He's, even though I still have that villainy problem, he's not doing villainous things. He's actually on the good guy's side, and you know, um, and and of course, the whole thing here. Spoiler alert: is you know, at the end of the film, him marrying uh, Agent Lucy Wilde, which I thought was great. And, and even though it was obvious that that's where that was going, like I called it like I don't know five minutes into her being on the screen, I thought right. oh, this is this is where this is going, uh, and they kind of put a point on it a little too heavily, but I still enjoyed it. Uh, and I, I certainly enjoyed the family aspect and grew growing into that. Uh, obviously, uh, he had grown into that from the previous film. Very much enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, and, and that's what made the first film any good at all was that same same thing. Um, and even though the plot was a little ridiculous, it was not nearly as ridiculous as the first film and far more enjoyable, I thought. I, I enjoyed it far more. I mean, I, I, there's there's a point at which the ridiculousness becomes stupidity, and stealing the moon that's just dumb. I I never was on board with that plot. <laughs> so, right. um, you guys you guys may insert your opinions here and mock me if you wish. <laughs> well, I think that steal the moon is like it's a phrase that people use. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've looked it up somewhere before. I've seen it somewhere before. I can't find it right now. But uh, that the, that was sort of the joke of the first film is stealing the moon. It's it's the ultimate crime, quote unquote, because you can't do it. And so, I mean, it was just a joke. There he uh, there he is off stealing the moon. It's 
lofty intentions. Uh, maybe I mean maybe it's just because I'm too serious minded. I I couldn't help but thinking of all the ramifications of the moon disappearing. <laughs> you know, you think of the gravitational effect that would have on the oceans and and the tide and and just you know various different things that are you know <laughs> you just. Well, I couldn't get past it. it. That's why it's they, very they, important that he decided to put it back. <laughs> yeah. And they do show the effects of the moon disappearing, How, albeit pretty briefly. Uh, it was brief. It, it, yeah. Anyway. but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just wasn't on board with that whole thing. Um, um, I already mentioned the minions are, are funny. Um, the, the jokes seemed funnier to me this time. And, and I'll admit it. It's, it's a little bit of... Uh, uh, just slightly crude humor, but the whole uh, "see you later, sheep, Mister Sheep's butt." That's Ram's bottom. Like that's right. any better, you know? <laughs> I, really, I really like that. Um, you know, announcing your weapons after you fire them. Lipstick taser. You know that that was that was pretty good. Um, the, the whole texting gag. I mean, the humor just seemed uh, it seemed much better in this film to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, you guys don't agree. You don't agree. Not really. I don't know. I, I can watch the first film every day for a week, and I'll laugh at the same jokes every time. I don't know if I could do that with this one. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really feel like there was any one line from this movie that, like, a week from now, two weeks from now, a month down the road, that I'll quote. But like, forever, like me and most of the people that I, you know, associate with, anyone can say. It's so fluffy, you know, and we'll all we'll all bust out laughing, you know. Right, so. or a light bulb. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know. That is true. They didn't have that in this film. That was that was. Uh, I didn't even notice it, but you're right. That was that was pretty funny from the first film. Right, the first film I thought is so endlessly quotable, and I didn't feel the mm-hmm. same thing from this one. There okay. were funny standout lines, but it's not as quotable as the first one was. Is Okay, I, I can see that. What else have we got before we move on to our dislikes? Officially, I know we've already we've already been all yeah. over the map, but officially, um, I've covered all of mine. I think. Okay, yeah, Mike, I, I ended I ended up hitting on most of mine already. So okay, well, as far as what I didn't like, um, I've already mentioned the whole villainy thing. Still made light of it, and eh, not really on board with that. Plot was too easy to figure out. Um, I I had the whole plot figured out, and, and it's not like I sit and try to figure the plot out as the movie's unfolding, but it's just I had it all figured out pretty quickly, um, and and everything pretty much came to pass. the the only The only interesting thing was I thought they were going in a different direction when it appeared like Gru was allowing emotions to cloud his judgment on who the real villain was, and yep. yet it turns out that that was that he was right, and it's just like, huh. What? So, so I had I called it, and then I reneged in my mind as the movie went on. Especially because, like, it would have been stupid if he had been right, and then he was right. Right. <laughs> like, I wanted yep. him to learn a lesson. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I thought the plot was predictable, but I also thought it was too busy. I mean, you had Gru trying to be a father and dealing with his girls growing up. That's a great thing to focus on. Mm-hmm. Gru trying to be a hero. That would have been a great thing to focus on. Gru trying to find love. And then you throw the minions all into that mix and you have a billion different things that are going on at the same time. Yeah, I and, don't know if I agree with that. I felt like the plot was all pretty followable, pretty simple. I, well, I mean, I, I thought it was followable, but I thought they were trying to accomplish too much in this film. I really liked the moments when he was trying to be a father. 
uh, the texting uh, when when Margot was texting a, a person named Avery and Gru was trying to find out if it was a boy or a girl. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think moments like that were hilarious. And the birthday party at the beginning where he dresses up as a, a princess, <laughs> trying to trying to please his daughters. Now, uh, I think those were really great things to focus on. But in all actuality, the gr- the girls were less in this film than they were in the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Well, I mean, it kind of speaks to what what I kind of thought after I left it. I, you know, I was like, I'm more disappointed in what this film could have been um, than what it ended up being. And I felt it it did a whole lot of things okay when it could have taken one or two of those ideas and really run with it. And, and I'm kind of really, I think, digging on what it, kind of Chad's saying. Like, it, we we see Gru during the movie kind of wanting to be something besides a jam maker kind of, you know, but uh-huh. so he, he kind of gets back into the, the superhero slash super villain, you know, just the, 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 the larger scope of things, you know, weapons. Oh, look at the greatness. But like, it would have been great if they would have taken that to the next deck and see how that was a really a, a conflict in them and maybe come to the family is the greatest adventure that you could have and kind of explore that with Lucy trying to be a mom because we have scenes where Agnes is really sweet and saying, Oh, I don't know how to celebrate mother's day because I don't have a mom. <laughs> and then right, we right. never really see Lucy become a mom. So when she does this really, really sweet, like, uh, kind of monologue thing at the end during the wedding, I'm like, really? Has Lucy been a mom? Does she do all those things for Agnes? I haven't seen that. We just skipped right. ahead well, and they got married. You know, that's coming in, in Despicable Me 3. Probably. Um, yeah. To, to answer Mr. Kaiser in the chat room, no, it did not bother me that Dr. Nefaria randomly had a cure and they didn't explain it any more than the moon <laughs> being stolen out of the sky in the first one. Come on, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the moon sure. was a metaphor. <laughs> and yet they actually did it. Yeah. Um, I was sad that uh, Dr. Nefaria wasn't in this film as much either. I mean, the girls were less in it less. Dr. Nefaria was in it less. And Russell Brand as Dr. Nefaria is hysterical. He is. He really is. And, I mean, as soon as he left, uh, uh, Mike mentioned this earlier. As soon as he left, I knew that he was going to be back as a new villain. Oh, especially sure. Especially once we knew there was a new villain. And uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, it was very obvious. Like when when the minion opens the door and recognizes who it is, and you don't see it, but you know, it's very obvious. Like, oh, hello! And then, oh, you know, and and it's like, well, duh, that was Doctor Nefario. I mean, duh. Right. But <laughs> I thought. No, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, I will go ahead. I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> don't start talking. No. Um, so so anyway, no. Dang it! Dang it! No, so. But that's what I was saying with the minions. I mean, we had lots and lots more minions, and I wanted like they they had one of the the kids like being the ninja. You know, I'm like, why do we keep showing her being a ninja when she doesn't really ever do any ninja things? You know, I, right. I wanted the kids to like join in on the adventure, kind of, or you know, to have more Doctor Nefario, or to have a a bad guy that was kind of there, there just present more often. Or, you know, they talk about even in the the description of the movie itself, they kind of describe, uh, you know, macho son kind of seducing the oldest girl. But we really get that for like a scene. And then the next scene, it's like, I hate boys. Like all that. I wanted I wanted to see less minions and I wanted more of the characters that kind of were unique and weren't there just for slapstick, you know. Agreed. And I think (laughs) El Macho as a a villain was uh, pretty lame. 
Yeah, Especially was, in comparison to Jason Siegel's Vector. Yeah, El Lamo. El Lamo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, either of you have more that you want to say before we talk about our ratings and, and stuff? The 3D was, uh, I mean... It, why would you I see a movie in, in 3D? Don't, don't do that to yourself, man. It was early screening. I didn't have a choice. Oh, yeah. But, uh... Oh. I was really disappointed. I was really disappointed that AVL wasn't the bad guys. When I saw the preview, I was like, Mr. Bottom man is going to be the bad guy. (laughs) Well, I kind of thought that when I saw the previews, you're right, but I never, I never got that in the films. That didn't bother me too much. Um, they were just bumbling idiots. Yeah. Right. Um, which, which it's like, where are the real law enforcement people in this universe? I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, Jody, you really want me to tell you that spoiler of is Doctor Nefario the real bad guy? <laughs> well, here it is. No, he's not. He comes back. So, um, so anyway, um, let's talk about our ratings. And this is interesting, Chad. You have given it three and a half out of five stars, even though you're down on it harder than I am. I only gave it three of five stars, but I think that's because you like the first film so much, and then now this film, you're comparing it, and that's why you're so down on it. Whereas I didn't like the first film, I give it two of five stars, and then the second one I feel like is better, therefore I give it three of five stars. So that may ex- just explain, even though I was talking more positively than you were, why you give it a higher rating than I do. Right. I mean, Fair? For, for reference, I gave the first film, I, I'm going back and forth between a four and a half and a five. I just a really five? love, Dude. Uh, I mm-hmm. love the first film. Oh yeah. DJ. The, the film is the first film is so good. Now, Chad, you, when when Joe and I were running this podcast, you've heard us talk about how we how our our, our the, the methodology behind our ratings, right? You understand? Yes. Okay. Yes. Five is is as perfect a movie as it can be. Yes, and that's why I did give it a four and a half on my review. Uh, I, I, it's just my enjoyment pushes it to that five, even though it may not be a perfect film. Okay. And so four and a half is the official rating that I've given the first film. And so I figured a, a one point difference on this one. Um, I, I could have gone a little bit lower, I thought. But overall, I mean, like I said, the kids in the theater really made it lots of fun. I did enjoy the movie overall. I still liked the characters, what we saw of them. But it just wasn't as good as the first film. It, it didn't reach as far as it could have been. <laughs> No, you're right, Jody, in the chat room. It can't be Wrath of Khan, which I did rate five out of five <laughs> stars. Um, so, Mike, th- we have yet to answer the question. How do you rate this film out of a five, a 10-point scale, five stars? How do you rate it? Um, I would say I would probably give it three stars. Um, as soon as I left the theater, I would have probably given it a two and a half. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. I would have totally given the first film probably four and a half stars, realizing that it wasn't perfect, but man, did I enjoy it. And there, there's not a lot of animated films that I can watch over and over again that I laugh in the same spots every time, or I enjoy the story no matter how many times I see it coming. And I just have no real desire to see this movie again. Um, like I said, I think if you have kids, they'll probably enjoy it a lot more. Um, I think it's kind of worth seeing, but kind of middle of the road for me. Like I said, half the film didn't enjoy. Half the film really enjoyed. I need I needed it to decide what it wanted to be. So, well, let me tell you about a a uh, animated film that I feel is worthy of four four and a half out of five stars, and that would be Wreck It Ralph. And Wreck It Ralph is so much better than anything in this universe that I just don't know where you guys are coming from. <laughs> I, I think Wreck It Ralph's probably a four, but see, to me, like Toy Story is a five. 
Uh, probably. I, I haven't officially rated that film, but I would probably be in that certainly four and a half. Certainly. You know, and, I, and as much as I love Despicable Me, Despicable Me to me is not like The Incredibles or any of the Toy Story movies. So, they, you know, it kind of kind of gets down just a just a notch. But I mean, that that's how much I enjoy it. I can watch any of those films. Okay, I um I can't remember, and I was hoping I could find out real quickly. I'm pretty sure I rated it four and a half, either that or four. Uh, Wreck It Ralph. So anyway, Ben is agreeing with me, in, <laughs> and he says up would be a six out of a hundred percent. It's a hundred and twenty. <laughs> See uh, now, people who would kill me on Skype or kill me out in like Movie by Land, I did not enjoy Up. Um, you, probably- you are you are a dead man. Well, see, that's the thing. I love the first, like, you know, the, like everyone's, you know, the first 15, 20 minutes, I'm like crying so much. You know, I'm just like holding my wife saying like, oh, I can't wait to grow old together. You know, and but then the rest of the movie, I'm like, what is this? I love like, it. Why, I love why, it. Why couldn't this have just been a short film? I would have. Uh, <laughs> People in the chat room say they're throwing rocks at their computer because of you. Uh, I, I, you you're going to have to pay for a few computers now. <laughs> I, I've, I've almost gotten in fights with people. I'm like, what am I destroying? What What is it about a man's with house balloons on his house that you enjoy and a dog that walks around that's kind of gimmicky? Uh, I just don't get it. All right. It well, this is not, we we got to move on because this is not about up, but oh my goodness, you are so messed up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so I the bottom <laughs> – the, the bottom line here is that all of us feel it's a movie worth seeing at least once. Yes. Maybe not in a theater, but yes. Yeah, I, oh, I'm I'm with you there. I mean, certainly, you know, we we see it in the theater to spare you guys. Um, I would certainly wait if if I were not running movie by. I would certainly wait to see it on uh, Netflix or something. So that's that's my assessment. Shall we move on to the Lone Ranger? Shall we do we that? We shall. Uh, yes, Mike. Have you seen this film? I have not. So, do you want to hang around and hear us talk about it? I would love to. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of expecting very bad things, and I think that's going to be an enjoyable thing to listen to. Okay. Um, well, you will not hear that necessarily from me. I do not share the opinion of most of the critics or most of the audience. I don't think it was a great film, but I don't think it was nearly as bad as people are saying that it was. Uh, so this film opened in theaters on July the 3rd, 2013. It had a budget, an inflated, insane budget of $215 million. It opened to the tune of, drumroll, wait for it, 29.2 million tepid dollars. It had a total worldwide gross so far of 79.3 million. Rotten Tomatoes critical acclaim says that Army Hammer and Johnny Depp make for an appealing pair of leads, but they're not enough to make up for the Lone Ranger's bland script, bloated length, and blaring action overkill. I do not agree with this assessment. So uh, let's talk about our general uh, feelings for this film just real quick, Chad. It was better than I expected. The Agreed. trailers didn't have me interested at all in this film, and I had no previous experience with The Lone Ranger. And so there was nothing, uh, no nostalgia that was dragging me to the theater either. Um, but, I mean, it, it was better than I expected, and uh, the ending was definitely better than the beginning, I thought. Yeah, I, I, I um, hmm. I will get to that. Um, I, I do feel like it was definitely a far better film than I was expecting. I was, you know, if you if you've read any of my snark on Movie Bite about it, I was certainly expecting it to be more along the lines of Captain Jack Sparrow plays Tonto. Well, and it was a little bit like that, but I kind of enjoyed that. Like I, I enjoyed that far more than I expected I would. 
Um, it was directed by Gore Ver- uh, Verbinski, who directed the three original Pirates of the Caribbean films and did not direct the fourth one, of which we shall not speak. Um, <laughs> he, he, the writers were Justin Haith, Ted Elliott, and Terry Rosio. Starring, of course, Johnny Depp, who I would argue is the lead of this film. Army Hammer, William Fletcher, Tom Willinson, uh, as um, he was the guy from Batman Begins as Carmine Falcone. Uh, Ru- Ruth Wilson and Helena Bonham Carter. Music was done by Hans Zimmer. Um, the storyline is that uh, – uh, I have to read the – the only synopsis I could find quickly, it was the official Disney one, so forgive me if it sounds a little stupid. Uh, from producer Jerry Bruckheimer and director Gore Verbinski, the filmmaking team behind the blockbuster Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, comes Disney, Jerry Bruckheimer's films The Lone Ranger, a thrilling adventure infused with action and humor in which the famed masked hero is brought to life through new eyes. Native American spirit warrior Tonto, Johnny Depp, recounts the untold tales that transformed John Reed, Army Hammer, a, th- a man of the law, into a legend of justice taking the audience on a runaway train of epic surprises and humorous friction as the two unlikely heroes must learn to work together and fight against greed and corruption so yeah not not the best uh (laughs) not the best summary in the world but there you have it no it makes it sound a lot more epic than it actually is (laughs) it does it was way overwritten but that was the one i could find quickly i was literally pasting that into the show notes two minutes after the show was supposed to start so uh sorry about that I think that's the same summary I posted in my review, so no worries. <laughs> um, so, I've, man, it's interesting. There's been a lot of angst. I just listened to the Slash Filmcast where they talked about it. It was um, David uh, uh, David Chen, uh, Devinder Hardwar, and uh, Russ Fisher, and they were very angsty about this whole representation of the Native Americans, which I don't get. I really don't get it. Like, yes, Tonto's messed up, and, and he's a Native American in this film, uh, but he doesn't represent – I mean, there were other Native Americans in this film, and they far better represented Native Americans than Tonto did. Now, Tonto was supposed to be a messed up character, regardless right. of, of his race. I, I just don't, I just don't understand what what was going on here. I, um, how do you, do you have anything to add about that, Chad? I mean, I, I haven't heard a lot of that because I don't listen to a lot of other film podcasts. But uh, they definitely gave themselves the excuse in the film to treat Tonto as a different sort of a Native American. However he was represented, re- represented, he wasn't represented as a Native American because that's not technically how he's seen in the film. His backstory that they give excuses him from all of that right, and excuses exactly. the filmmakers from all of that. Right, and I think that they're, the, the people complaining about this are, are doing so like, – like the reason they gave was, well – I think general audience viewers will view this as, you know, a Native American, and it's kind of a put-down of Native Americans, and I think they're not giving the audience enough credit. I mean, goodness. Um, I don't think so either. Yeah, and I, I thought that was really stupid. Um, and, and, and understand, understand, this is coming from a white man, so I, I have no clout here. I, I mean, I can't say this, really, I mean, because people are just going to say, oh, well, psh, you're a white man, you're in the majority of of, uh, of the Americans, and you're not in any of the minority categories, therefore you can't speak to this. Well, it's probably true, but... <laughs> yeah that's my that's my feeling like I, and look i i'm i'm against racism i have friends of all if i can use the term we're all of the human race that so i hate i even hate the term race but just just to i mean how else are you gonna say it i i have friends of all manner of different races of the human race uh black white uh you know uh 
Chinese, uh, black, uh, I already said black, um, uh, Native American. I, 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 in, in a previous life, uh, before, long before Movie Bite, before I was making films, uh, I used to shoe horses with my dad, and we shot horses for a shod. Uh, with a D, some people mistake me when I say shod as shot. No, we shod horses uh, with shoes um, for um, a, a Native American family um, that uh, – a fine family. I, I like them a lot. So um, I'm not coming to this as an angle of racism. I'm just saying let's not be oversensitive about this here. This is, this is stupid. I think the more we get oversensitive about it, we're just perpetuating racism. So sorry, I get off on a little rant there. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, and then the, the other general comment was that, uh, boy, people are sure angsty about the, the kid having the gun, which I thought was fine. <laughs> It was, you know, whatever. Of course, I'm a, I'm a bit of, you know, as people already know, I'm a bit of a conservative and I have no problem with guns, even though I don't have them myself and don't like guns. I have no problem with guns. So, uh, and certainly I, in, in, under the circumstances, it was fine. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, so those are some general thoughts. Uh, let, let's, let's dive into kind of some of the things that we like about this film. Why don't you start us off, Chad? Well, probably my favorite part about this film was Johnny Depp. And which, which is funny because, you know, last week we were both sort of slamming his performance before we'd even seen the film. Right. I, I expected, fully expected Johnny Depp being quirky Johnny Depp film character as he always is. And, and he was a little, I, I mean, he was a little bit, but I, I really enjoyed him as Tonto. I thought he was very, very funny. I thought he played the character very well. Like I said, I don't know how Tonto was portrayed in the older Lone Ranger adaptations, yeah. but I mean, I, 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 I liked the character here. It was very, very good. Yeah. Him. And Som- then Army something, Hammer. Something very wrong with that horse. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Army Hammer was great, too. I thought that the two worked well together, and uh, their duo largely added to my enjoyment of the film. You know, uh, agreed. Um, I, I thought that Depp and Hammer made a great team. And, and as I've already mentioned, I, thought, I think, of course, that Johnny Depp is the star of the show. As Tonto, even though uh, you know the film's called The Lone Ranger, um, and and you know that, that, I suppose that can be cons- con- uh, construed as a bad thing that that Depp really kind of took over as the lead, even though Army Hammer technically should have been. But I mean, y- you got to know as Army Hammer, you know, who's not that well known, he is somewhat known, but not that well known. When you're signing on with Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp's the lead. That's just the way it is, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I thought it was fine. I thought Army Hammer did hold his own next to him as well, for that matter. So. Um, uh, you know, so you definitely enjoyed Johnny Depp and Army Hammer in their roles and, and was surprised at just how well I did like Johnny Depp because I was, I thought I was burned out of Johnny Depp and I thought I was burned out of, of that sort of thing. And let's just give it a rest for a while, but it was very enjoyable. I was never bored during this film, even though it was a little bit long, I was never really bored. Like I, I, I was engaged throughout the entire, there wasn't any point in the film where I was looking at my watch or my phone going, where are we going to leave the theater? You know, it, it, it wasn't like that at all. So that's, that's definitely a good thing. And, and the action, um, I, I thought was pretty good. It, it, it seemed like a good mix of action and drama. I was, I was very happy with that. Uh, so probably my favorite part part of the film is at the very end when uh, uh, the Lone Ranger, you know, the horse rears up as he is, you know, the classic scene, you know, and he says, "Hi ho, Silver, away!" And then then it cuts to it cuts to uh, Tonto who says, "Don't ever do that again," <laughs> which I thought was <laughs> that, great. That was hysterical, yeah. and I thought that was perfect. I mean, films like this, they have to reference their previous iterations somehow. I, I acknowledge that, and. Th- 
I'm glad they didn't they didn't try and shoehorn that somewhere into the film. I thought the way they did it at the end of the film, after the story was said and done, it it was almost like a pre credits kind of scene. And Johnny Depp's face right there was hysterical. And now they don't ever have to do it again. They don't. They've they've said it. They've paid their homage. Now they can move on and do their own thing. I mean, obviously, if it gets a second film after how much money they've lost over it. But still, I thought that was very well done. But my favorite part of the film was the final train sequence. I thought it was incredibly fun. Um, the action was great. We'll get uh, to that. I I, I loved. I loved Hans Zimmer's music, uh, the the intro, the the William Tell overture, which was the original film uh, theme for the Lone Ranger on the radio programs and yeah, older films. We'll get to that. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> you apparently didn't enjoy it. We'll but, get to that. <laughs> but I thought that scene was so much fun, and it okay. was it was I, I was like swelling inside because I thought it was so much fun. Okay. Okay. Um, additionally, one other element that I, I actually liked, and this is, goes back to my first general point about the Native American thing, is I felt like they portrayed Native Americans very well and did not put into a good light the fact that they were being mistreated. I thought it was great. I I, I don't understand what people why they're getting all uh, worked up over this. So. Uh, and then I really liked uh, Ruth Wilson's character, and I wished there was more of her. Like I felt like she was a little missing from some parts of the film and wanted to see more. So. Uh, that's, that's it for my likes. You got anything else? I liked the tone of the film as in color. Um, oh yeah, it, that, that it was, was very good. Very right. muted and it very, it definitely felt like a Western watching it. And, uh, then William Fichtner, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, um, as the main villain, Butch Cavendish was very appropriately menacing. I mean, looking at his face, you, you grimace and I thought he played the role pretty well. Yeah, he certainly did. He certainly brought uh, menace to the to the role. Uh, although I think my favorite villain character, uh, and I, I, I actually didn't realize he was going to be the villain until I mean I realized it before he be, before he did become the villain. Uh, and this might be a uh-huh. spoiler for people listening, so beware. Um, but um, I, I, I thought I, I did call a little bit before, but but very well done. I thought for the most part, and uh, it, it was um, I'm looking for the name here. The uh, Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, yes, Tom Wilkinson, w, yeah, of of uh, Batman Begins fame, at least for me, as Carmine uh, Falcone, um, and uh, oh, is it Wilkinson? I must have mispaced or mistyped the name. It's I, I had it as Wilkinson, so Wilkinson. Uh, I thought he was very good, very good, and for sure. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then my last uh, like was Zimmer's score. I think Zimmer, while I have been critical of him in the past uh, for copying a lot of his music. Um, I think these his past few scores have been genuinely really really good, um, and I'm I'm just excited to see him growing a little bit as a composer, maturing a little bit, uh, and just he's he's definitely climbing my ladder um, because, like I said, I have been skeptical of him in the past, but I thought it, he did a very good job here. Okay, you, you we're talking about the same Hans Zimmer, right? Who who yes. scored uh, such epic pieces as um, a gladiator, <clears throat> um, Dead Man's Chest, uh, uh, Batman Begins, and Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. I mean, come on, dude! How can you not like Hans Zimmer? How can you? Th- oh, I, how can I, he be climbing your ladder? How's he not already at the top? Okay, let me just explain this very quickly. I love Hans Zimmer. I'm looking at my soundtrack collection right now. I have a document. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven Hans Zimmer scores. 
including the Lone Ranger and including all those films you just mentioned, except for Gladiator. Um, I, I enjoy his music. He's good at what he does. He's really good at getting the audience to like his music and uh, to walk away with that. And his score to Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest is one of his best as well. Absolutely. But looking through some of his scores, I hear a lot of the same things. And I'm not saying that's the case for every single one of these scores. And yet you like John Williams. <laughs> See, here my, my argument here, and it is definitely my bias, I suppose. Uh, Williams has a characteristic sound, whereas Zimmer uses all the same themes. Uh, disagrees very strongly. Um, <laughs> okay. Very strongly. Parts of Indiana Jones, uh, and uh, what was the first one? Um, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders Star. of the Lost Ark, thank you. Um, parts of it were so, sounded so much like Star Wars, I couldn't get past it. So, I mean, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about like the theme, like Luke, it's just a couple of notes different from uh, Luke's theme in parts. So, uh, anyway, anyway, moving on past yeah. that, you, you, you enjoyed it. And, and sure, I thought his score was fine. I don't think it was one of his stronger works. Uh, I think maybe, I think it's possible we've seen Zimmer's strongest work in Dead Man's Chest, but that remains to be seen. He's got a, got a career ahead of him, so. Um, sure. Let's talk about a few things that we didn't like about this film because there are quite a number of things that uh, that, that can be said. And, and the very first thing, I mean, the very first thing is as I'm watching this film, I'm going, why is old mannequin Tonto telling this story? Why do we care? Why, why? That whole business should have been cut, and that would have taken care of the length problem that I had, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Um it, it was unnecessary. There were a, a few a few slapstick gags gotten from it, and it was it's just not clear why we needed to be hearing the story occasionally cutting back to Mannequin Tonto telling this boy about about the the, the story. I, I don't understand why that was necessary or needed, or or why that why people thought that was a good plot device. That was my exact opinion. I mean, the framing device was completely unnecessary. It didn't need to be told as a flashback. It didn't serve the story in any way. No, not at all. Um, it just it just gave Johnny Depp that exper- that uh, opportunity to be quirky a little bit more. Right, and if that's the only reason that you're doing it, time to cut it. Right. You know, it, it needs to. You're right, absolutely right. It needs to serve the story. It didn't serve the story. In fact, I'd, I'd say it detracted from the story. Uh, there were times yes. when the the boy said, "Well." Uh, you, you know, this is often called hanging a lantern on it, but I felt like it was tight enough that you didn't need to hang a lantern on it. And we probably, as the audience, would not have noticed these plot holes. There was times when the boy said, "Well, how did you do X? You didn't explain that." And Tonto just sort of would look at him and then move right on, right along, and never, and we never did find out. And then you sit there and you go, "Oh, that was kind of a like, like how did that happen?" And you never do find out because he never says it. Like, and if that framing right. device hadn't been there and they hadn't drawn attention to it, it would not have been a big deal. Right. I think they were sort of trying to go to the same feel that uh, films like The Princess Bride has as being told as a story or even uh, Secondhand Lions, the whole tale that's told in a sec- Secondhand Lions. I think they were trying to go for that sort of feel, but it just didn't work out for them. Well, fail. Um, yeah. and so, so related, the film did seem a little long. Like, And I feel like if they had cut the framing device out of the film, it may have helped with that a lot. Because there were there was some things that just it just in in some ways just uh, yeah it just felt long. Yeah, I agree. It was too long, and uh, that was one of many things that I thought was 
very unnecessary in this film. The very first thing being the weird love triangle. Um, yes, I completely agree. Like, like that, that was never played into the, the thing. Like they, they could have gone on with you know, and and the the framing device here for the love triangle is that uh, that the Lone Ranger's brother had a wife, but but she, like he was already like the Lone Ranger dude. John is that the right name? I get the names mixed up. Yes, he's it's he John was already in Dan. Okay, so he was already in love with her, and, and apparently maybe. She she with him, but then she married his brother, and then so the whole thing is convoluted, and you didn't need that. Like he still could have a, you could have just removed that altogether, and the film would have been just fine because it never went anywhere. Or b, he still you, you still could have brought that out after his brother died. Then then it's not a forbidden love, which makes it better, a lot better. But but you you just detract from the character of somebody who's supposed to be this upstanding hero when he's having this uh, forbidden love thing going on, you know. So. Yeah, it, it was just very strange. I mean, the very thought of getting together with my brother's wife one day, just, I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> Gross. And, I mean, wh- why would they make that part of a, a Disney film story? Yeah, it was weird. It really was. Well, speaking of yeah. making something a part of a Disney film story, I mean, eating a man's heart on a PG-13 movie, I mean, even though they didn't show it, like, just just the whole thought. It's <laughs> But what's yeah. really strange is, I mean... A, I think this is a very good point made in the Slash Filmcast that I just listened to, that this is Disney exercising their uh, clout with the MPAA, which is why they're pretty stupid. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what, uh, is it the MPAA that rates films? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, like this film was somewhere in between PG-13 and R because there were some elements that certainly would have been and should have been R-rated, but uh, and certainly Butch Cavendish eating a man's heart even though it, and it was weird like cuz you didn't see what was going on and you're like what is going on and then they kind of then they finally have to spell it out so that you understand that that's what he did because they couldn't show it because it's a PG-13 movie it's just all very weird yeah and, and it's just and, weird for a disney movie yeah and let's see tonto's backstory while i do think it gave them a uh, reason to play him as a a little bit different native american i i didn't think that the backstory was very necessary because they didn't play off of it very well um mm. i was perfectly well i was perfectly fine with tonto just being this crazy native american guy who has visions um and that that provided his motivation i i thought that worked very well for the character especially especially since johnny depp was playing it i mean uh johnny depp plays those kind of quirky characters and playing Tonto as this guy who just has these weird visions that convinces him to do this and do that. I think that would have fit in. Um, I, and I don't know. I, 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 I kind of like, I, I like Tonto's backstory. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. I thought it was good. And, 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 and it was pretty, if you think about it, it was fairly integral to the plot. So why would you want to cut it? What, and, and what, what film would be left if you did cut that? Because where's the motive? Where, where do the character motivations come from? All of a sudden, if you cut that element, I don't know. Um, <laughs> his visions. He was he was just having weird visions. But then, but then his character, his motivation doesn't make any sense anymore, though. So right. I mean, it gave gave them motivation, I suppose. I just didn't think that they played off of it in the film. Yeah. Very well. Okay. All right. Well, you're entitled to your wrong opinion, as I used to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then uh, one other thing that I thought was very unnecessary was Bonham Carter, uh, Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, I feel like they just went up to her and said, hey, you're in films with Depp a lot, right? And you always play weird characters. How does Brothel Madam with a gun disguised as a prosthetic leg sound? And then she said, <laughs> sure, I'll be in it. 
And that that was the whole point of her character being in this film. Yeah, I mean, she's like the female Johnny Depp, right? She does play pretty right. weird characters. I mean, she and, and she was so perfect as Bellatrix Lestrange. I mean, <laughs> oh, she's wonderful in the Harry Potter films. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, I felt like if they had had her more integral to the plot, that yeah, I think it would have been fine. But they didn't. And 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 yeah, I, I'm totally with you on this. And, and and speaking of that that prosthetic leg, I mean, it was like played up as like her plastic leg was supposed to be this sexy thing that the guys were attracted to. And I'm sitting here going, Ugh, what in the world? Yeah. What is wrong with you guys? <laughs> yeah, and even Tonto wanted to touch it. It was just very very weird. <laughs> it was very strange, very strange. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're, I felt like she should have been a little more integral to the plot. I mean, I did like the, I did kind of like 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 the gun in the prosthetic leg thing i mean that was funny and that was that was yeah. fun but yeah as a whole that just didn't really work and, and she wasn't very integral to the plot like you could have cut her and the movie would have been pretty much the same which is never a good sign right so um y- you know um that th- i wanted to get to this you were mentioning in your likes that last uh, action set piece and and the music which I like. I wanted the music to allude to the William Tell overture and then move on. And instead, it dwells on the William Tell overture for like fifteen minutes. It felt like I don't know if it was that long. While all this crazy action is going on, people are getting killed and shot, and 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 it just feels too way too glib. It, it doesn't work well at all. That 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 music is fine like when he's riding through the you know off into the desert or something on his horse but here it felt really 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 strange to me very strange i did not like it at all i don't know for me i knew it was the lone ranger theme and even though i didn't have any attachment to the character it felt very nostalgic to me and um you know, I, I haven't listened to the soundtrack all that much, but that track that, that, that the William Tell is featured in is called Finale. And, uh, it plays the William Tell, but then, uh, the, uh, sorry, Zimmer sort of integrates that subtly into his, his personal score. And it sort of goes back and forth a little bit. And I really enjoyed how he did that. And like I said, it, it brought back the nostalgia for me, even it, which was strange since I, I hadn't seen Lone Ranger before, but it just gave me that sort of feeling in well, my chest. And I should say it did for me too for a minute, but it just went on way too long. Like they needed to allude to it. They needed to incorporate it. And then, then he needed to move on and, and he didn't. And it, it was very strange. Very, very strange. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, the, the whole silver bullet thing never went anywhere, and it was kind of connected with, with, with Butch Cavendish eating the guy's heart. Like, he's supposed to be this weird supernatural thing. Like, I was expecting some supernatural stuff because, hey, it's, it's the same team that brought us pirates, right? And yet, right. and, and you, and they set this whole thing up with the silver bullet, right? Like, the only way you can kill Butch Cavendish is with the silver bullet. And he uses it instead on the other guy. And he only used it to shoot like the watch out of his hand, and and then he drowns. And and the whole thing was very unfulfilling, and it never went anywhere. Like, what was that about? Yeah, um, it it was very very strange. I mean, I, I couldn't understand half this film whether the supernatural aspects of it were being played as real or not. You, you um, know, it was not. It was not clear. You're very. You're right about that. It was very unclear. Because they keep referring to the Lone Ranger as a spirit warrior, and then the horse is a spirit horse, and he can't be killed in battle. And lo and behold, he never gets killed in battle. And not but only that, then, he, he walks like right through gunfire, like point blank, and he didn't get killed. <laughs> right. But well, then the same supernatural superstitions claim that Butch Cavendish can only be killed with a silver bullet, and that never pays off. So I don't know which side to believe in, because, uh, I mean, I'd like to think he actually died. I don't think that 
they could bring him back after the way either of them died. Um, but it, it just, I, I couldn't, I didn't know what this film was trying to tell us as far as the supernatural elements were going. Yeah, it was very confusing. I, I agree. That's pretty much all I've got. What else? Have you got anything else? Um, the, the Lone Ranger's aversion to guns was strange to me. It was, but um, that's very PC. You have to understand. It's very right, PC. It, it is. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I think it would have worked better if they had given us a proper reason for his aversion to guns. But um, you have to understand the time frame with which, in which this was set. I like, there was nobody with aversions to guns back then. And if they did, they would have kept it to themselves because, you know, the culture frankly was fine with guns and there was a lot less crime. So I think we need to get back to that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if that's entirely true, but, but anyway, anyway, I, I don't know, I'm trying not to get political here and, and bring out my crazy views that people will not like and stop listening to the podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I like, it is a little crazy though. If you're going for the, historical accuracy that this guy would be opposed to guns hey he's the freaking lone ranger hello right <laughs> so i mean um, there, there's one moment when he says he hasn't fired a gun in nine years and my question was what happened nine years ago did something dramatic happen that uh, actually fueled his dislike of the weapon or did he just leave for law school and not have time to fire guns and decided he wanted to be on the side of the law and i mean while that could work i thought it was pretty lame motivation to just completely be opposed to guns even if your life was at stake and you needed that sort of uh safety net yeah yeah i agree and okay and then my my one last dislike that i've listed is very nitpicky um but they, there's a band that plays the Stars and Stripes Forever by John Sousa twice in this film. And this film takes place in 1869. The Stars and Stripes Forever was not published until 1897. Oopsie. Uh, yeah. I mean, with a, what was it, a $215 million budget, they could look something up on Wikipedia. <laughs> you think they would have dispatched somebody to research that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's nit- nitpicky, I suppose. Okay. But it just bugged me while I was watching Okay, well, we've been That's going it. at this for two hours. We've really got we to pull this in for landing. So, uh, okay. Chad, what do you rate this film? I gave it three out of five. Okay, and uh, I give it three and a half out of five. And, and I, you know, I, I, like I said, it was a far better film than I would have thought. And I, I, do, I do like it. Um, I do recommend seeing it. I mean, even, you know, it, it's a giver. Like, if you want to see it in the theater, I think it's fine to see it in the theater. You can also wait and see it on Netflix. I think that's fine, too. It's not like, it's not like, I'm, it's not like Star Trek where I say, go see it in the theater right now. You know, right. so... It's definitely passable. It's it's forgettable uh, for the summer, but it is worth seeing at least once, I think. Okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, Fizz, you still with us? I am. Did you have any questions? Oh, no. I, uh, I, I was actually just thinking that I expected you guys to kind of tear it down, and now I... I'm almost regretful that I did not go see this movie. Well, you know, like I said, wait and catch it in uh, wait and catch it on DVD or on Netflix or something. It'll be fine. Yeah, Although we're both being. We both enjoyed it better than we thought, for sure. Yeah, and we're both being far kinder than anybody else is being. Uh, on yeah, Rotten Tomatoes, much. it does have a twenty six percent approval rating. Right. Yes. Uh, IMDb six point seven of ten. Rotten Tomatoes. The uh, critics are giving it twenty six percent. The audience is only giving it sixty eight percent, and it is bombing at the box office. So you know, here I go again with my countercultural um, uh, like and likes and dislikes. Apparently. So, yeah. well, well, next week, um, I believe we're going to talk about Pacific Rim. I'm trying desperately to get a guest lined up. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Since you're not going to be with us, Chad, we'll see what happens. But be, be expecting and prepared for Pacific Rim. I don't know what to make of that film yet, so uh, we'll see. All right, so, Mike, where can people find your excellent work online? 
Uh, I'm not sure where they can find any excellent work by me, but they can uh, find what I'm doing over at uh, realworldtheology.com. Um, uh, you can also find us on iTunes. I've got a podcast. We're two episodes in. Yeah, I've two pretty got good a, episodes. I thank you very much. <laughs> we've got um, we've got another podcast lined up. I think for maybe a week from now, we're going to cover uh, Much Ado because um, we're like I said, I found some Joss Whedon fans. Uh, we're going to be doing Despicable Me too, so we'll take more of a theological look at it. Um, okay. Very excited about that. So if anyone wants to, like I said, checks out iTunes website, best uh, best ways to get a hold of me. Physification on on uh, Twitter. You can follow me. I usually announce when shows are coming up. So okay, cool. Yeah, definitely recommend uh, checking that out. And uh, I don't believe I'm following you on Twitter yet. I think I've connected with you on Facebook, but I'll definitely uh, get you on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I actually speaking of uh, Joss Whedon's um, film. Uh, uh, why did the name just leave my mind? I hate that. I hate it when this happens. What, what was the name of that film? Much Ado. Much Ado, thank you. Much Ado about nothing. I did just see it recently with my wife, and uh, we both liked it fairly well. I think she enjoyed it far more than me, her being the uh, the uh, Shakespeare nut in our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I enjoyed it well enough, and uh, yeah, it was pretty good. So, Chad, where can people find uh, the work that you're doing? You can find me on uh, Facebook. I am uh, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. Um, I write reviews of films. There are soundtracks in the occasional book on chadlikesmovies.com and on Twitter. Uh, it's best if you just look in the show notes. All right, great. Um, and uh, I, I think I failed to get your Twitter in the show notes last week. So, but it is chadada, right? Yes. Okay, C H A D A D A D A. Yes. I think I got that right. Um, so, um, yeah, and uh, if you want to keep up with my work, I, I do write on Movie by every day. It's usually just little bits and blurbs that I write every day. I try to get some reviews out there uh, every week. I'm, I'm failing miserably because I have got so much going on in my work life right now. Uh, but moviebyte.com, obviously, is where you can keep up with that. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm TJ Draper Pro over there, uh, and I, I post all kinds of uh, fun and not fun and, and ranting and raving and just whatever else you might find. And, and obviously, I'll, I'll announce things about Movie Byte occasionally, but to do that, to to get an announcement about Movie Byte, you'll want to follow the Movie Byte Twitter. That is uh, at Movie Byte. And uh, you can also like Movie Byte on Facebook, facebook.com slash Movie Byte. Show notes for this episode are at moviebyte.com slash podcast slash 51, uh, where you can listen to the show again online and catch the show notes. If your podcatcher does not pull those in, that's where to find them. And with that, next week we will be talking about Pacific Rim, so prepare for that. And we are out of here. 